clubhouse. Did it not occur to you to speak to me before you addressed my daughter? I suppose I was carried away. Well, the answer is no. Gladys will not agree to be your wife. Uh, is that it? Am I to have no chance to put my case? I've uh, I brought papers proving my financial status, and I'll inherit my mother's house on 61st Street, so Gladys's home would be right across from yours. You are welcome to show me what you like. I'm not in a hurry, but nothing will alter my conclusion. You know that I'm very much in love with her. Well, that is what I do not quite know. But you are right to claim it, since a love match is the one thing I'm determined on for her. Then I can assure Please, you that I do... you have not convinced her, and you will not convince me. I think you may genuinely like her. And that you intended her to be happy in her life with you. More than Let I... me finish. I understand these marriages of convenience take place in every fashionable church in this city. But I want more than that for my child. Of course you do, and I can Let only... Let us leave it there, Mr. Van Ryan. And now you should go. Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode two of season two of the Gilded Age, Some Sort of Trick. It was written by series creator Lord Julian Fellows, and it was directed by Deborah Campmeyer. This is the first time directing for Deborah, or the first time directing the Gilded Age for Deborah, but they'll be back to direct episode four. So a little, a little sneak preview. If you like this one, maybe you'll like episode four coming up. Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, please join us in the Facebook group, the Gilded Age fan group, HBO series. That group is, the group is blowing up. I feel like there's 200 like new people every in. single day. <laughs> we're letting in hundreds a day, you guys. So for sure, please check it out and uh, make sure you check out the, the rules because we are really careful about trying to keep out spoilers. So go on over there and don't get spoiled. It's really fun to talk to other people about what they're, what they're picking up on and different theories people have. It's fun. We have uh, dedicated episode threads. So you could talk about the episode for the day it airs and the first, and first couple of days after it airs. That's the only place you could talk about it. So if you're just scrolling through in your feed, you won't be spoiled because it'll all be in the episode thread. And then after like Tuesday night, uh, we start letting posts talking about any episode that's aired into the main thread. So it balances being able to talk as much about the show as you want, but in a very specific place. So casual people scrolling through their Facebook feed, um, you know, don't have to worry about being spoiled. It drives me crazy when groups are like, just, you know, just leave the group for two days. Well, that's annoying. And I don't want to have to keep leaving a group and rejoining a group. So Right. And it's hard too when you have, you know, surprise things that happen or twists or whatnot, and you're just scrolling through your regular feed and all of a sudden it says something just smack in your face. You couldn't help but avoid it. It's always yuck. So we just want to remind you guys that this is not a recap show. So we don't do like every single scene and every single line. We assume you've seen the episode. So we're going to talk about it broadly themes, what we think is going on overall in the season, and just things that maybe we want to kind of focus in on just because we're interested in it. So let us know if there's something we missed in the episode or something we've missed in a previous episode that you'd like us to deep dive on. We'd be happy to do that. I didn't talk about this last week, uh, but the brand new giant house that the Russells purchased in Newport 
that's a real house. Uh, they're not, I don't think they're referring to it as the same, but the house stand-in is a real house out in, in one of the Newport mansions. It's called the Elms. The, the house itself was built in 1901. It was the summer residence of Mr. and Mrs. Edward Julius Berwind, whose fortune was made in the coal industry. The real Elms, though, does not have an ocean view, unlike Bertha and George's palatial estate that they bought, which, as far as I know, they have not yet given a name. Maybe it's like the Pines or the Oaks, but it is not the Elms in, in the show, but it is Elms in real life. Tonight, we finally get to meet Miss Susan Blaine, Mrs. Susan Blaine, and her and see her Newport home. Her Newport home is also a real home out in Newport. It is called Kingscote. Introduced in the episode, it is the stand-in for Mrs. Blaine's house. It was built in 1841, so it was actually standing, unlike the Elms, it was actually standing when this show takes place. Uh, its appearance in Newport marked the beginning of the quote-unquote cottage boom that would distinguish the town as a veritable laboratory for the design of picturesque houses throughout the 19th century. A little bit more on Kingscote. It was owned by Southern planter George Noble Jones. He commissioned architect Richard Upjohn to design a summer cottage along a country road known as Bellevue Avenue, which was the avenue upon which to build your mansion back in the day. It was at the time on the outskirts of Newport. And the uh, Joneses actually abandoned it once the Civil War began. So they lived in it for a couple of years, but then they were kind of gone and it just, it just never returned to Newport. They passed through a bunch of families' houses and eventually left the final family's uh, house, I think in 1971. In 1972, it was put on the uh, historical register. Or it was purchased by it was purchased by a preservation society that is dedicated to buying up the old Newport mansions from the Gilded Age and preserving them, getting them registered as uh, historical landmarks, and then opening them up to the audience after they do some renovation work. If you guys are interested in this, this is a website that I found. This is the last thing I say in this very long preamble. The website is newportmansions.org. It is run by the Preservation Society of Newport County. They are following along with the show, but specifically. Specifically, they cover the, they do recaps of the episodes, but they are specifically focused on the Newport mansions that get featured in the show because that's their, that's what they do up in Newport. But it's great. They have pictures. They give you, they give you information. I'll put, I'll put some of it on Facebook about the Elms and Kingscoat. They go into the detailed history, who built it, who owned it, the different families that owned it over the years. Is it still standing? Was it renovated? What was added to it? Like Kingscoat was a smallish cottage after the initial owners uh, passed, after the initial ownership passed, subsequent families that owned it actually added on to Kingscote and made it larger and larger. So it started off a little bit smallish and then kind of grew to the final house as it stands today. We have to get up there, Caroline, for the Newport Mansions tour. We have to go do one of those, I think. That would be so much fun. I am always in awe of homes that have names. It makes me smile because my background is far more like Gilmore Girls, where they decided to name their house the Crab Shack. And that's a lot more my world than uh, the Elms or Kingscote. <laughs> yeah, I've often thought about what would I name an estate if I have one, Yeah. if I ever had one. I haven't come up with a good name, but I definitely feel like I want some like wrought iron gates with <laughs> with some winged boar, you know, on like so, like <laughs> stone pillars and, uh, you know, so, something very palatial. Every now and then you see up here, it always, it's always made me laugh. These people will have like wrought iron gates and like a stone arch and then like a fence that runs out from the gate. 
the the wall only runs like thirty feet in any direction, Ooh. and then you can just walk around it. That's like, very funny. Are you are you planning on the robber only seeing the very front of the gate and not looking <laughs> to the left or right of your home? That's very funny. Well, we know that those gates are to just like mark the entry, right? So like my parents have a lake house and it's funny because theirs is gated as well. We've tried to come up with a name for that place for so long and we're Lithuanian. I'm 100% Lithuanian. There are no beautiful words that (laughs) make sense. They all sound so biting when we say them in Lithuanian. And so I'm like, oh man, I just don't know. Like Cubstis is my maiden name and uh, that means stump in a swamp. Like, nothing means something so beautiful. (laughs) So I'm like, well, what could we possibly name it? We just haven't come up with anything yet. So listeners, if you guys have a good name for your own place, or if you have suggestions for a lake house here in Houston, let us know. Reach out to us. Talk to us over on Facebook or on X or over on Instagram. It's all at Pod Clubhouse. I refuse to call it X. I just can't do it. I can't either. I, I can't. stumble. I was going to say Twitter, but I'm trying to be grown. It's hard. It's hard. Change is hard. You know what's hard, Mike, in this changing world of ours is alarm clocks. I really want to know why Jack is always fiddling with the alarm clock. It came up multiple times and like they kept really giving these like pointed lines like alarm clocks are unreliable. And like when they like say stuff like that to us, to me, I'm like, jot that down because somebody's going to rely on alarm clock and something's going to go very, very wrong because of it. Or is Jack Trotter really going to become like the inventor of like Big Ben little like alarm clocks or what's the story? What's our connection here? I've yet to find it, but I want to know if anybody else knows or has an inkling. I put down in my notes, why were alarm clocks unreliable? Because I was in a saucy mood when I was writing my notes. I wasn't really going to like dig into it at all. But then it did come up a bunch in this episode. And I and then my notes continued. Wait. Are alarm clocks not working a metaphor for something? And I haven't, I haven't figured it out. I haven't sussed it out yet. It could be, maybe, maybe it's like we're messing with time. We're messing with something about like tradition or something like that. I could go with some sort of metaphor working in here, right? That like time's up or the alarm's going to sound or something, something. I don't know exactly what it is, but I can feel it. Time passed you by while you were sleeping. Well, you weren't paying attention, perhaps, right? You were supposed to, but you didn't. That applies to several of our characters. I mean, think about Me Ada. Too. Ada's trying to fight how much time has passed in her life. Peggy is trying to get past her morning period of time passing. Mrs. Blaine is trying to wind back the clock with her new cougar uh, <laughs> prize that she's claimed. There's lots of clocks. Agnes is fighting the the onset of time that continues to click forward. So a lot of time imagery in this, but the idea of a time alarm clock specifically an alarm clock failing, though. something yeah. meant to warn you that you yeah. can't rely on. Yeah, something that's supposed to help you be ready for something. And right. now you're not ready. You're like taken aback. So there's something to this. I, I trust Lord Fellows to always be pointing us as the watchers, like which direction our eyes should be facing. And he's definitely telling us something. I'm still going to leave in reserve some idea that there could have been, you know, a servant in some house that actually did become an inventor or did become somebody who did 
somehow revolutionize the the current alarm clock they are using into what we use today. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you and I did a little bit more of Edison research. I know that there's a whole lot of cool discoveries and inventions that came along sort of like happenstance, on, like while they were making something else, uh, you know, they figured out that this material or that material could work for it. So very cool. I'm really interested. I want to see if they're going to continue this. Do you guess that they will? I, I think so. I think they spent too much time on Jack to not continue it in it some like form his or fashion. entire storyline this time. Jack is so interesting because they keep putting him in these positions where he says something kind of grand or or announces that inside himself he has some grand ambition. And we'll see him tinkering towards it, but it doesn't get really resolved. Think back to the end of last season. He tells Bridget, maybe that'll be us one day. It's America. Mm-hmm. Which is funny. I thought of that line today because there's a... Uh, Larry utters the line, welcome to America, when they see Miss Turner appear. As when now Mrs. Winterton at the end of the episode, the first word spoken by the stunned Russell clan mm-hmm. is Larry saying, welcome to America. Well, it's actually mm-hmm. the second word. Class actually has the first thing. But we know Jack wants to improve his lot in life and his station in life. And just the determined nature in which he was taking apart the alarm clock. And then you have Armstrong saying, of course, it'll never work again now that you've taken it apart. She's such a bitch. God, I fucking hate her. (laughs) It's interesting because alarm clocks, we think of them as something that just, I mean, our phones have alarm clocks, uh, which is crazy. And we set them and you don't even think about it. Like the idea that it would be unreliable doesn't really click for us because it's like what are you talking about like if i set my alarm on my phone it's gonna go off like, except there's... for when you forget to set them it happened to me last week if you I... set it or if you're right. or if you like run out of battery right like those right. two things could definitely happen but i there was something about this whole thing i'm still kind of convinced that this could be jack's ticket out of here that somehow again maybe it won't be alarm clock related maybe it'll be something by taking apart the alarm clock he finds some material or he finds some sort of mechanism that he's like this could be applied to this but i do feel like we're at some sort of little start line for him figuring out something. It, uh, it happened to me just last week. I, I forgot to set my alarm. I get up at six o'clock every day. I forgot to set my alarm clock. I woke up in, at a, in a start in like a panic at like 5 a.m. because my brain must have realized kind of like, you know, Kevin's mom in Home Alone, like, come on, <laughs> like no alarm. So like my body woke myself up, but it threw me off the rest of the day. I mean, I set the alarm at six yeah. and I really just stared up at the ceiling for the next hour until the day alarm then went off. And it threw me off the entire day. I felt very uneasy that I, I this thing I rely on every single day had kind of failed, though I do often wake myself up like two minutes before the alarm goes off but knowing i hadn't said it clearly upset my body and upset my internal clock i like the idea of bringing up this topic because it really does highlight the the movement from being more of a rural country where we would have you know relied on the sun and roosters to wake us up on our farms to now like you know we're so much more an urban society where now we have to rely on these mechanical things like alarm clocks and how it it's like frustrating to kind of figure out like how do we live without those like natural things that wake us up? How do we like now turn into these more mechanical things, which is certainly something that as a society we've all done. You know, we just we instantly didn't even talk about our alarm clocks. We just went to our phones. Like, we didn't even talk about whether we own a real alarm clock anymore. It's been a long time since I owned a traditional <laughs> alarm clock. I saw one at my sister's house that I recognized as my grandmother's and it was like, whoa, that's so wacky. I had seen that on her nightstand for, you know, like her whole life. Um, and it was just like a regular 
regular alarm clock. It wasn't anything fancy, but it was just something that it really clicked with me how often I don't see real alarm clocks anymore. So again, a whole step here because we're at the point where they're just inventing this and trying to create a good version. And now we're living in a time when really people don't even buy those anymore. So how interesting, right? A product like came and went. (laughs) I remember I was in grade school, I was maybe fifth or sixth grade, and I either inherited or my parents bought for me. I don't remember where it came from, but I remember I came into possession of a radio alarm clock. And so every morning, the Z Morning Zoo, Z100 here in New York, WHTZ, Z100, uh, would like wake me up. And it was, I, I thought it was magic. It seems that way. Radio in general seems like magic, I swear. So the alarm clock that we're talking about here, the modern alarm, the modern alarm clock, uh, where you can both tell time and also set off an alarm, which could be adjusted to any specific time at all that you wanted, was actually only invented in the 1870s. So this is actually still pretty early technology. So it's almost interesting that all of the downstairs servants in these homes are relying on alarm clocks, especially the older people who tend not to be so quick to adopt technology, at least in our times, but maybe their employers require them now that the alarm clock is available, that they do have to live and die by it. Well, I wonder that because actually I'm trying to think back, like if any of the actual older staff referred them, because I bet those guys do just wake up on body clock. And and it was interesting. made mention, right? Didn't she make mention that her alarm clock always, it it always fails. So she doesn't rely on it. Maybe is that what she said? Doesn't rely on it. But it's interesting that Jack, a younger person would not only want to embrace the new technology, but want to improve upon it. All of that was like, yeah, this is like speaking to generational stuff as well. That's the spirit, though. I mean, we're in the we're in the time we're entering here in 1883. We're entering the time of Edison and Bell and Latimer and then, you know, all these great inventors who took dynamic ideas that never existed and invented them out of whole cloth. But you and I were talking about Edison just last weekend. As for as many things as he created that didn't exist before, he also took things that did exist and tinkered with them and made them better. And, and him and his people uh, took existing ideas and made them better. And so that seems to be kind of where Jack is going here. Just to give you a little bit more information about it, the pioneer of the modern alarm clock was the Seth E. Thomas Clock Company, founded by Seth Thomas in 1813. Although Mr. Thomas himself died in 1859, the company he founded and that bared his name produced the first practical mass-produced alarm clock in 1876, this mechanical hand-wound clock had an alarm mechanism that could be set to any time. It was the first truly modern alarm clock. It had arrived. Here's the thing, though, and one of the reasons I think maybe they fail in a practical sense, not in a metaphorical sense, was it seems until well into the 1900s, alarm clocks had to be wound constantly. The spring mechanisms that were in there in order to get them to go off and ring the two bells on the top, the hammers, really through the time mechanism off. And so even if your alarm went off, it was not uncommon for your clock to have lost minutes, uh, you know, seconds and minutes over, over a very short amount of time. So you really constantly had to be on top of your clock to make sure it was wound to the correct time in order to successfully use your alarm clock reliably. So it wasn't, it wasn't as easy as push button technology as we obviously have today. 
Definitely not. Well, and speaking of like sort of reinventing or like trying to figure out how to live in today's society, I feel like we had a lot of reinvention in this episode. We had people who are trying to start a new beginning. We have people who promised us in previous episodes that they would be back and they would be different and better. And we got that too. So we have some brand new faces, but we also had a face that we recognized from last season. And I'm saying that in a really kind of way. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> oh, exactly. we actually, and the podcast actually has a return of an old friend. I'm so happy she was able to join us. She could not be with us in our first episode, but she's back again. Uh, Ms. Baranski, I'm so happy you're able to join us back in studio for the new season of the podcast. You want to hop, come over here, hop on the mic? You can just jump right on my mic here. No. Well, maybe <laughs> if you're feeling it later, maybe you'll come on the mic later if you're feeling it. But we're happy to see you again. Yeah, you are a legend, Christine. Never change. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the two new faces. Again, we, we mentioned in episode one of this season that there were going to be a lot of new faces rolling out across the Gilded Age, adding more and more theater people and, 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 and people like Robert Shaw, Sean Leonard, who is playing Reverend Forte. This episode introduced two new faces. Laura Bonanti joined the show as the resident cooker in chief, Mrs. Susan Blaine. She was talked about last week. We finally got to meet her this week. I want to hear about your first impressions with her, but we also met Nicole Bryden Bloom, who joined the show at the very end of the episode, playing the mysterious Maud Beaton. Someone clearly that Aurora is trying to maybe make cute with Oscar. Maybe this is the next, maybe this is the one, maybe because Gladys isn't going to happen with Oscar. So maybe, maybe it'll be Maud. Maud and Oscar, two, two <laughs> real modern sounding names. I'm really excited. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's jump into this Mrs. Blaine conversation because we have Larry who is definitely trying to invent himself, right? Discover his career in this interior design slash architecture. These days, we don't really use those words interchangeably, but it kind of seems like they are here because he's doing some work that I would say definitely architects do, uh, more like, you know, changing the actual physical walls and like different, you know, the actual build of the house versus paint colors or textures or window treatments or stuff like that, which I would consider more interior design. He seems like he's kind of doing both. And this was a big win for him to be connected with Mrs. Blaine because she apparently has an entire house she wants completely redone, which for someone like Larry, I mean, wow, that's that's like a huge get for him. It's not just like some sort of small project. It's something that he can really make his mark. And there in Newport, I mean, I feel like people people are like even more gossipy there because it's like, I don't know, maybe they're away from business and whatnot. So they have even more time on their hands to want to like be peeping in on each other's homes and like just checking out how people are designing things and doing things. I think we forget how much we get as like our modern society from like social media, Pinterest, stuff like that, where we're like, what are people wearing these days? What are people doing? We take for granted granted that things like walking to church is how people figured out what's the fashion or peeping in on other people's homes is how they figured out like, hey, well, what's the cool new thing or what are people doing? You literally, literally have to go look in people's windows and see. Were you surprised at Mrs. Blaine and her, let's say, very forward behavior with Larry? I think it was risque to say the least to see it play out but i feel like we were pretty well warned about it i i think ward told us last week she was a much younger woman than her husband she never planned on him lasting for 20 years of marriage she stays in newport so she could play which 
you know, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, Ward, we all know what you're talking about. Was very much the vibe last week. I feel like we were prepared for her, but she really delivered and exceeded those expectations. I, I mean, across the board. She was pretty sultry as like a woman, as like a, an actual, uh, like just taking her acting and, and her the way she carries herself, like she was saucy. Like I, I believed this. This wasn't one of those things where I'm like, oh, they're just making her throw herself at this younger man. Like Larry was a hundred percent into it. She was a hundred percent into it. They clicked fast. Larry's young. Larry, you know, doesn't want to go to prostitutes. What? Of course, Larry is going that to be so down, tricky. down to That's clown. <laughs> but but you're right. She presented herself in a very refreshingly sex sex forward positive attitude. It would be hard for I think most people to turn that down. Which begs the question, you know, yes, she is looking to overhaul this very stuffy house that it seems like her cheap husband furnished with dead relative furnishings and it made it seem depressing and not inviting and gloomy. Yes, I fully believe that this woman who seems vibrant and alive and not in the least amount of mourning. I noted her costume. Yes, there was some black trim in it, but the the dress she's wearing when Larry and her first begin to kiss and obviously begin to, you know, have sex afterwards that we see off camera or don't see uh, on camera. It's a white dress with only some black trim. This is only 18 months after her husband died. We told we were told last week that she should still be in mourning about that. No, no. She is she all about trying to get that Larry in her. So <laughs> the question is, does she did she really intend to remodel her home or did she intend to get some really accessible dick that happened to come with an interior decorator i'm gonna go with that she would have chosen an interior decorator or an architect however saying who also clicked off the other boxes mm. so so i think she was definitely gonna do it i mean if you really look at it i mean through my eyes i mean immediately huge differences between this home and say what we're seeing going on in the city you know obviously very closed off those little small little boxy rooms versus those grand you know hallways grand big ballrooms and even the library everything everything was very big and spacious and and light and you could get a lot of light in there which at the time again we have to remember electricity is just coming in on the scene and so things like really big windows and how things are painted and everything it really really matters to like the mood of your home so i i think that legit she was ready to get out of this really i mean it just seemed very old-fashioned and like really dark i think there. even agnes van ryan would be would be, would think it was too stuffy and and overbearing yeah it's just really masculine too yeah so I could see where she wants to make her mark on it. And it sounded like she had a very overbearing husband in the way that, like, she wasn't able to make anything her own anyway. So just from that point of view, just wanting to make it look like something she would choose, I would understand wanting to redesign everything. I'm glad you mentioned that because listening to her talk about her husband and the way he mandated the house be furnished, which for this time period seems to be even an overstepping of what a husband would do. I can't see George coming in and, and directing so minutely the furnishing of his home on, you know, East 61st Street. But more than that, it, it listening to her talk about her husband, 
kind of reminded me of Oscar and Gladys's conversation when he said, I would respect your opinion and I would allow you to be free as much as possible. And you would, I would never say you didn't have a voice. And she said, you know, well, of course. And he said, most men aren't going to make you that offer. It almost feels, it feels like Mrs. Blaine's existence to her husband is the cautionary tale that Gladys has to be worried about becoming. I agree with that. And the things that she doesn't even know is possible that like it could end up like this before you where you're in a beautiful home in Newport, but sitting in a dark room in silence. Like, is that what you want? <laughs> yeah, this is a vivacious woman who clearly has had to hibernate, hibernate her true self, sexual and sensual and, and colorful for 20 plus years. And now she's ready to go. But is it too late? I mean, she is entering her middle life. Don't let that happen to you, Gladys, because... This is what can be if if you wind up in the wrong marriage and wrong match, you know, you're staring down a Susan Blaine life. And, and maybe it works for someone like Agnes, who, from from what we can tell, maybe didn't ever have the desire to live a flashy life that maybe she understood her duty to preserve the old money and make marriages of convenience more and never even entertain love. But clearly that was not what mrs blaine gambled on she gambled on marrying an old man that would leave him leave her all of his money and die quickly and it you know sometimes you gamble and you win sometimes you gamble and you lose and it sounds like she lost 20 years on that gamble i am refreshed by this concept that somehow newport is like this playground and that people aren't really yeah they're really not like scrutinized as much i guess because things are just like like i said and there's no business going on you can kind of just be like you know maybe you're hanging out over here but maybe you could slip away over here and someone might not notice i think that this is very exciting for this season for us to have more going on in newport and this area that's sort of a little bit less judged and and definitely less um like monitored what's going on out there we need some of that in this world. I think Ward summed it up in his own way uh, perfectly and maybe accidentally when he said, no tiaras at the casino ball. At the casino ball, it's flowers, f flowers and feathers when I'm by the sea. Okay, Ward, I see you. You're all about the flowers and feathers when you're by the sea. All right, all right, all right. Newport, that's well, where it's at. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like everybody's allowed to like let their hair down a little bit and like very literally for some like of these it with flowers and feathers, uh, you know, with and not and, and to like stop being so um like stuck on things like wearing like diamonds and all this kind of stuff but be more free be more loose with everything and you could tell that that was definitely the attitude i'm i'm excited for more to be going on in newport before i ask you my next question i need you to recognize how hard i'm restraining myself from making a joke about mrs blaine wanting larry to rearrange her interior um <laughs> okay Audience, let's all give Mike some credit for not saying anything disgusting. <laughs> wow, wow, you're really keeping it together. Yeah, We've seen Larry's work twice now. Once we've seen, I guess we didn't see the before in what he did to Bertha's house in Newport, but we saw the after. But we did see him present her a, a blueprint drawing and, and an idea of what he thinks the house could be. And we saw what the house currently is. As someone, I look to you for all of my interior design questions and thoughts and, and I, any anything I need done, I really run by you. So I'm curious what your impressions on Larry Russell interior designer are. What do you think of his work? 
Oh, boy. That's a little bit of a hard question because, again, don't know what the befores were. But I'm I'm going to base it on Bertha's response. She has seen everything and she was really pleased with it. So I have to imagine that he, you know, hit it out of the park here because she was like, great work. And we didn't know how Larry's profession was really going to fly with his parents. And so I'm glad to see that she seems to be supportive and he seems to be good at it and enjoy it, which is like, yay. I'm glad we're not seeing like drudgery out of him because we need some characters who are like living it up you know we have we used to have that in oscar but he's kind of seeing all the negative sides of like enjoying life i would like to see some people you know getting to do their own thing and enjoy it it's interesting because oscar is a little bit older than larry i I don't get the impression he is terribly older but he's definitely older and more importantly i think he is old enough to be entering that next phase of his life so it's interesting watching these two single men one of which we know from season one lived it up as much as possible and burned the candle in and on, on all of the sides and now is facing begrudgingly so having to enter that next phase of his life settling down even though it's not what he wants to do and maybe begin a family even though it's not what he wants to do and be married to someone he doesn't love because it's not what he wants to do and and take up that family mantle and larry who is just entering that playboy phase of his life let's play this clip because i think larry here this is when he comes home uh in his walk of not so shame uh he's still smelling like a, a french lady and him and bertha get into it and I think the thing to listen for here is the fact that Larry is not repentant at all about what he has done. There, He he is not regretting it or, or second-thinking it at all. Let's take a listen. Where were you all night? At Mrs. Blaine's house. Was it a party or just the two of you? <laughs> Do you really want me to spell it out for you? I want to know what you think you're doing with a woman twice your age and ill-suited for you in so many other respects I haven't got time to list them. I like Mrs. Blaine. When there are countless charming and suitable young ladies for you to pursue. Susan Blaine appeals to me mostly because she's quite unlike those suitable young ladies. And I'm fairly certain you don't want me to elaborate on that. Other young men deal with these things without causing comment. Yes, they go to prostitutes. Would you prefer me to do the same? I prefer there to be no scandal. I can't believe this. Susan Blaine is a decent woman. Decent women don't sleep with men young enough to be their son. This one does! Keep your voice down! Look, I'm happy. Haven't you always said that all you want is my happiness? Not at the expense of your good name. Will you accompany her to the party tonight? I'm perfectly content to take you and Gladys as long as you don't expect me to come home with you. One, it's interesting to note that Bertha does not forbade him to continue, which you know if it was Gladys, obviously this would never be Gladys, but she would have come on down on Gladys with all of the hammer force possible. So she's almost a little subservient here. Maybe she feels like she can't talk to Larry given his age that way, which is interesting for Bertha to feel like she can't do what she wants to do but i'm curious i'm curious as as a mother of a son and as a as a mother and as a daughter who maybe challenged her parents from time to time when she was younger i'm curious of this interaction as a parent but also from larry's side and his lack of not only shame but really just throwing possibly his good name and the russell name in the trash and not really giving a shit about it at all what was your take on all that 
Oh, I think that times were not so different as they are now. I think that maybe Bertha is projecting the concept that, you know, if you sleep around or or be, or do anything like this, that you're going to get a bad reputation. Uh, I haven't found that to be true for men. I found that to be true for women, but not for men. So I don't think anyone's expecting for him not to be sleeping around for different people. And I think he's actually kind of smart the way that he said, yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not going to sleep around with the group of women who is like supposed to be my potential mate, because those ones are being first of all highly handled by their parents and like that would actually mean something like he'd have to like get engaged or something if he got physical with any of them but there is this whole other group and we talked about this a little bit in our first episode about like the life expectancy and like that men die off and then you have this kind of group of women that are a little bit just sort of like untethered and I know that Bertha said she's like twice his age I don't really think that's true I think Bertha's like twice his age but I think the Mrs. Blaine is younger than Bertha I understand that maybe she's not appealing to Bertha because likely she wouldn't bring kids to the to the table and that kind of stuff. And that's obviously what Bertha's going to care about. There's certainly money there. So in theory, it's fine. But Bertha hasn't wrapped her mind around Newport and what all goes on out there. And I mean, we know she has a rude awakening in this episode with Miss Turner. So I think that there's some... I don't know, like a little bit keeping blinders on about how it really works. And I'm glad she can't exactly hold his feet to the fire on this because, I mean, this is the way it's working. You know, I mean, guys like Larry, like you said, he he could just go off to a prostitute, but he doesn't want to do that. So what's he supposed to do? If you can't actually date and just casually date people, that's not acceptable. Then you do kind of get in this weird place where you're either like just sleeping around or you have to be like in this very committed, very traditional, very monitored relationship. Like there doesn't seem to be like any in between, you know, you can't just casual date. So it's it would be very hard to be a young person. And I'm glad that Larry's not ashamed. I'm glad he's like, this is what I'm doing. Talk about sex positive. I mean, he's like, do you need me to spell this out for you, mom? Like, come on. <laughs> like, you know what we were doing and I'm cool with it. So I don't know. What do you think? I mean, is this a relationship that could actually spell trouble or is this just something for Larry to be like busy doing that's just fun side story for us or could something actually really bad come of this situation well it's interesting because all of our experiences so far in this show with prices have and consequences being levied for romantic or sexual misdealings have been paid by women right, I'm thinking of Mrs. Chamberlain uh, who who paid the scandalous price for falling in love with a man she wasn't supposed to be with. And and the way Marion's life is so regimented by Agnes about who you can be with and who you can't be, the, there's been very... And, and, and Oscar having to keep his true romantic life a complete secret and, and not be able to share that uh, with anyone, let alone be able to crow about it to his mother, which could you imagine? Like, Oscar coming home smelling like John Adams and getting into it with Agnes, they'd both die. I think they would both die on the floor before that would happen. So I got to tell you, Larry kind of pissed me off here. I would never have had this cavalier conversation with my mother or my father. And I would be very upset with Thomas if he was to be so cavalier about this with me. There are responsibilities in life. And yes, maybe your father is not going to force you into the family business. And maybe you are being given the freedom to 
live your life in doing your architecture and interior design and, and that work. And that's great. And he should be able to do that. But he is still a Russell. There are still responsibilities in a family. And he is not a child. He knows very well what he's doing. And everyone, we can talk about the playground of Newport. But those people do eventually go back to New York, and they don't forget the stories that happen in Newport. It shapes their opinions. It, it, it opens up the family to all sorts of, all sorts of possible slings and arrows that, even if Bertha wasn't so ambitious, would still be problematic for them. Let's say it's not Mrs. Blaine. Let's say it's someone with less money or of a lower status that he's being so sexually cavalier with. Because remember, he doesn't say, I'm, I'm boinking her because I want to be. Well, he does. But it's because he makes very clear women his age or, or uh, girls who are just passing into young womanhood his age won't have sex with him. But let's say he finds one that has sex with him. Well, then she shows up pregnant, or she says she's pregnant, or she says he did this or did that. So, yeah, I guess he's picked a good mark, but I really think this is his penis talking in this conversation. I don't think it's actually Larry talking, and I think that's the problem. I think he is being too flippant and very naive about the whole reality of the situation, and that pissed me off. I actually really disliked him in this scene, and oh, I really okay. disliked this entire behavior. Not for getting laid. Hey, man, go for it. And and it, again, totally, totally great catch with, with Mrs. Blaine. But your attitude about it is disrespectful. That is not your home. That is your parents' home. You're living under their house, and you're acting this way when you know that things matter looks the servants see you coming in the carriage driver sees you coming home you don't think they talk we see every episode they know everything that goes on larry is being a bit of an asshole here and actually really pissed me off if not for his interactions with marion in this episode i really and just i like their friendship and i like the way he kind of will intercede with mr morgan and stuff though i think oscar and obviously dash will do a better job than that larry really turns me off this whole episode i hate the flippant attitude and it, it's it, you know what it reeks of this is this is my problem it reeks of a guy who's never had sex before, and he thinks he's the first one to do it. And so he's all out here with his chest puffed up and crowing like like he's done, like he's invented the fucking wheel. Bro, you know, get a hold of yourself. Like, you know, go have a little humility and keep your business private. No one, not everyone needs to see your wet dick hanging out of your pants as you walk in the house the next morning. Yikes, that's very strong. Well, okay, so I agree with you on one hand, and you asked me as a mom. I mean, certainly I don't want my kid to be, like, flipping off to me, talking words that are snotty or whatever. Like, that's all crummy, and, and that's not cool. But also on the flip side, Bertha, I mean, don't ask questions you don't want answers to. So, I mean kind of back off a little bit like she has come into his world he's working this is his world he's, he is working. <laughs> he's working that's true okay but you know what he he and his employer have decided to to do this it's not like he's throwing himself at her and it's like this big embarrassment that she's not returning that you know interest it's mutual and you know bertha is just coming out for like various weekends and stuff. So I don't know if you get to pop into your kid's life, be super judgmental, wag your finger and then run off. Kind of not cool and, and kind of cliche, like, come on. So I think Bertha should have just zipped her lip. I mean, how old is, is Larry at this point? We think early, he's early young 20s. 20s, right? Yeah, early 20s. So really, really, if you're a kiddo in his 
early 20s was having sex with somebody like you'd really wag your finger like that's bad behavior. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's that off. Again, I don't think it's the having the sex. I think it's who he's having sex. She views or the just whole... that he's not being cool. You know, well, he's I, not well, being both quiet. of those things. I mean, Larry didn't go. <laughs> Bertha's not waiting at Larry's chateau and estate. Larry's rolling in after the morning has begun because Bertha's up and already dressed and doing the house. It's not like even like a 5 a.m. walk, like he's like sneaking in. Like he's just like, I just had some croissants and breakfast at the casino and my clothes from yesterday smelling like, you know, Susan. Now I'm going to wander home and the whole fucking day has started. You bro, you're going home to your mom's house who's up there for the season. You know, she's up there for the season. That whole thing. It's not the having sex. And I think that's Bertha's thing too. I love this scene because I think this is every mom, but it's also maybe every woman too, In when they're first meeting each other and Larry tells Susan that he needs the day off next week because he's going to go see his friend play tennis and she invites herself along and he invites her along with how it works out. And, and Bertha intercedes, aren't you too old? Essentially saying, aren't you too old to be going and watching young men play tennis? That was Bertha doing the the mom slash woman thing of like, understand your optics here, Susan Blaine. Uh, and I, I like that moment because I thought that I felt it was like a very authentic moment. I agree. And it was like a way of sort of being like, I see you and I see what you're doing. Uh, And like, maybe you want to check yourself on that. But see, I think that was handled better than when Larry came home in the morning. Like to me, I don't know. There gets to be an age with your kids when you got to be kind of cool. I mean, you know, and and I will not get graphic with this. Don't you require your kid to be a little cool too? Well, hang on. We both have teenage boys. And we know that they're, they have their own private lives, right? And like, we don't get involved and like say anything about how they handle things, right? But like, and I'm not going to get graphic. So there's some things that it's like, come on, as adults, we know things go on. And like, are you really going to act like you don't know and, and be like, oh, where were you? Oh, you stayed there. Like, come on, Bertha, like, stop. And so in that regard, it's like, I don't know, you had your 20 some years to raise your son. If you didn't raise him good enough not to do this, you don't get to kind of like call screaming at this point, you know, either you put the values in him and he has them and he's going to do right by you. So then just like walk on or you didn't. And I mean, for me, I trust Larry. I, I understand that maybe it was a little unsavory how he's but they, they weren't out in public. She did, you know, push him on it rather than just allow some amount of unspoken dignity to exist. She pushed him to say, like, he was like, do you want me to actually say rude words to you? Because I'm trying to just walk on and change my clothes, you know? Yeah, again, okay. And I, I agree with you, but I also very much disagree with you. As as a man who was a son, or, well, is a son, but has, is long removed from this, uh, from this period of my life, but also as a father, see, a great, great example, kind of calling back to what you were talking about. I curse a lot. Anyone who's ever listened to any podcast, including this one already, knows that I curse a lot. But my son, who is 15 now, 15 and a half years old now, I I don't want him cursing around me. And he's never been allowed to curse around me. Here's the thing. I know that he curses. He has slipped. I've overheard him interacting with his friends. So I know he does it, but I expect him to have respect for me, not to do it in front of me. And when he does, I call him on it. But here's the difference. When he walks in every day, you don't say, 
Did you curse today? Tell me every curse you said. You wouldn't do that. And that's what Bertha did. She said, what were you doing? What did you do? Like, she's trying to get him to say bad things he did. And I'm saying that, like, if your kiddo doesn't curse in front of you, then he's already he's already showing you, like, some, you know, respect to, like, not do that in front of you. But, mm. like, if you if you push him against the wall and say, you better tell me every single time you ever curse, and then he does... Well, is he out of line or are you? Like, he didn't do it in front of you. What are you doing? I'd expect him to come, you know, have a little more um, subtlety in how he cursed. I'd expect him to make sure he was uh, home in bed before cursing, before I woke up to find him cursing. <laughs> but you know what I mean, I, right? I like, there, it's like here, if you push I, yeah. it, if you push it and then they admit to it. Are they disrespectful or are you being like kind of prying and kind of making a situation where now they've said it in front of you? Well, they wouldn't have said it had you not asked. Here, here's the one devil's advocate. And I don't even know how much I believe this, but I think maybe this goes towards it because I, I, I think their conversation, I think her pressing him on the conversation, I think, I think his entire body language was offensive without her even pressing the words. I'm really turned off by his whole body language, let alone okay. his words. So the fact that he came in in the morning so everyone can see, everyone that he... Those are enclosed carriages, you know? They, everyone in Newport who's out and about in the morning, and you know old people are up so fucking early getting their coffee and their crumpets and shit. You know, everyone's watching him. Oh, he's leaving the Blaine house. He's going down Bellevue Avenue to the, to the, that's the Russell boy. Oh, look at him. His, his shirt's unbuttoned incorrectly. Uh, you know, everyone's, he waited, almost like he waited to leave so everyone would notice him. And I don't know how much I believe <laughs> this, but maybe Bertha pressing him on it was more from her incredulity that he acted in this way and to her did something so stupid from a social graces standpoint that she actually needed him to say it as to make her worst fear come true like like she was pressing him not because she actually wanted him to hear it but more like my god my god i can't believe you did this how fucking dumb are you you know you know how good of a woman can she be uh, you know if she's going to have you know sex with a man half her age and with, with his lie his lie is like savage back she's like well she is and she did, and she did. Uh, you know so maybe bertha's reaction here is more just her own voicing disbelief at what she clearly knows he did. I mean, she goes in and gives him a big old sniff. She knows yeah. then what happens. But that's what Everything I mean. that comes like, after why? But why? And as a mother, and, I, and you can say whatever you want about your parenting, as a mom, what are you doing? What are you doing walking up to him and doing like... I mean, like, what is that smelling? What are you doing? What are you doing? If you I, already know where he was and you already know what was going on, then if you want to have a conversation about like, hey, you seem like you're getting kind of serious with her. Is this someone you want to pursue to date? And then he's going to say no. Then you say, OK, we need to talk about this in terms of like, well, what is your next steps? Because like, are you planning on getting married anytime soon? And like, let's talk about this. But to do what she was doing, like the I smell sex on you. kind of. Well, then you're inviting this disrespectful conversation to happen that didn't have to happen and if she wanted to have a respectful really mature conversation going up and sniffing someone is never the way to start that right i mean 
<laughs> There's no one you could go up and sniff and then have a respectful conversation. Sure. I, I, I agree with you, but he sets the tone, though, with the slouched posture in front of her. The he's tired, uh, man. It's been the, a long night. But he's got such a fucking <laughs> smug look on his face. Listen, I, I'm a big dude. Larry's not so big that I can't take him over my knee at that point. Oh, yeah. my God. Real fucking, sm- real fucking smug. Oh, I am really, really it just pissed me off. It, he <laughs> hasn't made any agreement with his mother. It's he did- it's social suicide it's for a man i do not believe that is true i believe it is social suicide perhaps for mrs blaine but i do not think it is for larry at all i think all he gets from george is like a high five I don't know. I don't know. That is I not historically how men are treated in terms I, I, of play. Yes. You're a hundred you're a hundred percent correct. I guess Bertha did not say these words, what's a prostitute? It is social suicide. <laughs> okay, here. Well, let me let me let me make it more now. It's social suicide from Michael Caputo's point of view. And and, and I think less of Larry now. For whatever that oh. is worth, I think less of this fictional character from 140. Here's well, the I definitely go. don't. I don't think less of Larry. And I think that this I actually appreciate Again, this kind of writing because, of because it well, because it stretches us past what a history book would tell us about the Gilded Age. And that's what I care about. Like, tell us what really happened. And I think it's refreshing when they say, yeah, 20-something slept with widowed 30-somethings. And, you know, that happened just like it happens today. To me, I feel like it actually makes them more three-dimensional characters. And it, it allows us to see, like, yeah, there are parts of the society that were very different than ours. But you know what? People were still just people. The cliche of, like, a, a stay-at-home woman sleeping with the contractor, sleeping with the handyman, sleeping with the delivery guy, sleeping with the milkman, like... None of those, that's not, you know, outside the realm of like, yeah, we all get that. Like, we all understand that that's stuff that happened. So I don't know. I like that, that Lord Fellows like went into this and kind of made us be like, no, there's a whole other, a whole other part of society that isn't about bustles and, and protocols and calling cards. There's just sort of like real people acting like real people. My last thoughts on it. Again, I don't care about the sex. I'm all about him going and having sex. I think it's silly that he can't. I, For me, it's entirely his attitude to his mother in this conversation. Because, I, I I mean, he would get a high five from George. I don't know that he does. If he comes in with this attitude, like, I banged the hot widow last night, Dad, up high, I don't think George Russell, as we know him in the show, would be like, that's my boy. I think he would. I think he would have some cautionary words about it. I, I really do. I really, I, again, not the sex, it's the attitude and the behavior and the, and, and how he is carrying himself. I, I never think it's a great idea for you to act so happy about your conquest and to throw it in your mother's face in your mother's house, whether she asked questions or not. Again, he didn't return home to his house. He returned home to the house that she lets him stay in rent-free so he can pursue it up to very recently has been a hobby of his. She could easily say to him, you're going back to New York. She doesn't. She allows him to stay. He is an adult, though. You know, he's not 17 years old. He's in his 20s. He's graduated college. He's working. You know, I mean, he has a full-time job doing his thing and his profession. Like, I appreciate everything you're saying. And as a mom, of course, I want to be spoken to respectfully. I also know that when you walk down a path and you start asking questions that you don't really want answers to, you can't really stomp your feet when you hear the answers that you already knew were there. And likely she was already married to George at this point. So it's a little like, mm, you know, like, 
I don't know. Do you really know what it's like to be like in this level of society and be a single person? Because I don't think you do at all. I don't know. Bertha kind of knows what's going on. But remember, she really doesn't. She didn't grow up in this. This isn't her society. She's trying to bust into this society. But, you know, I don't know. We should definitely move on from them because we've talked about this particular situation for a very long time, much longer than warranted. And I am saying to remember that George literally does say, well, boys will be boys. No. And then he sees his wife's face and he's like, oh, dear. Well, then we'll have to get into it. But his first reaction is boys will be boys. So uh, and I'm so, just and, you know, and again, yeah. Bertha didn't say, what's a prostitute? What are you talking about? Which means that, yeah, everybody already gets it. So if you already get it, what do you what are you questioning him about? You know? I don't think we need to go into it. I think it's pretty obvious, but I think we definitely need to bookmark Susan Blaine's reaction to Marion the first time she sees them together at the casino. But even more interestingly is the second time when they run into each other at the McAllister Ball. Her exact quote is, oh, it's you again. So do we think she's warranted? Do we think that that a Larry Marion match is like such a possibility that she should have her hackles up? Or is she just being like a little bit like sniffing around to see who's her competition? My reaction is both. I think I think she is clearly a woman who is going to be territorial. I, I think everything about the way in which she pursued Larry and, and got with him uh, shows an aggressiveness, which will come with being territorial. But also, she's not dumb. She was a very young bride to a very old man so she knows that she knows the game of society and getting married and you know she's she's mrs turner 20 years later uh that she's mrs turner as of now mrs winterton is doing exactly what susan blaine was doing before she was susan blaine so she knows the game so she sees a pretty a pretty young woman very friendly and smiley with her now new toy yeah i think i think she's immediately going to have her hackles up because this woman is not like washing the clothes. She's up at Newport in a fine gown, which automatically makes her someone who is at least without knowing any other details, someone that may be matched to Larry. So immediately, I think hackles are up, but also it's territorial pissings. Marion represents something that, again, that I kind of touched on, but like having kids and having a family is a huge, huge deal when it comes to keeping the money, you know, within your family. There is something there that Mrs. Blaine should feel kind of stressed out about when you see like the Marians of the world, because you can't offer the kids part to Larry that she can. At the same time, I'm wondering, like, is it even remotely viable that Mrs. Blaine would be allowed to marry someone younger like this, like societally? I don't think she's planning on marrying him at all. Oh, I don't think so either. But what do you... But could she? Like, would that be acceptable in any way? Because on, we've only seen the other way. We've only seen really, really old money men marrying a younger woman. But would he be allowed to? Like, can, can he stay in society being young and marrying an older woman? Can she stay in the society like that? Or is that like a no-go? I'm glad you asked that because I actually, I don't know because Bertha says something really curious when they're having their, their face-off in the house. She refers to Mrs. Blaine as being an unsuitable match for Larry for for many reasons. But I understand that she's rich as hell and she's single. So it's kids. It's kids. Of course, it's kids. Of course, it's it's kids. But but beyond that, though, she fits all the other things. Right. I mean, she she's she's old money via inheritance. Maybe that maybe the 
maybe a widower remarrying. So legally, obviously, they can get married, but I think society would probably be very down on it. The kids, obviously, the kids thing is huge because that's the entire point of this. Gladys is not going to produce a Russell. She's going to produce a whatever her husband's last name is. Right. So Larry is the key for for the Russell fortune. So obviously where that goes and who that's connected with is a really big deal. I don't know. Let's put a pin in, a, pin in it in terms of this is a relationship that I, we don't know enough about the society, the nuances of exactly what can happen here. But I am very curious if our listeners think, like, like, is this a bomb waiting to explode and ruin stuff for Bertha? Or is this just a light side story of what Larry happens to be dabbling in as well as his profession? But he's also getting into these, like, little affair situations like this. Like, what, how big is this in the larger story? Is this something that could derail the Russell's new money situation or is this just for fun it's also interesting to look at it in light of a snowball starting to gain gain steam down bertha's mountain because now yes she has this now issue that she has to keep track of but she also has the met academy of music fight which she herself is brewing but at the end of the episode she's got the introduction of mrs winterton and mrs turner and all that that that's going to entail because remember not only did she dismiss turner but turner tried to sleep with George and which George did not pursue, but also probably did not actively handle well because he never told Bertha about what happened. There's a lot of steam starting to pick up heading down the mountain of Bertha coming towards her. If on its own, would it be as big a scandal as it may become for Bertha or become a bigger item in her head because of all the other things that she is beginning to tackle or having to deal with that will fall out from this episode? curious I'm, I'm curious as to like what is the actual gravity of this situation or is it just fun is it just a fun side kind of like salacious story for us to laugh and smile about and be like Ooh. i will tell you a fun story i will tell you a fun fact we know that larry is going to watch his friend dickie sears play some tennis at the old casino up in newport well dick sears was actually a real person his name was richard dudley sears he was born in 1861 in boston died in eight on april 8th 1943 he was actually the first american men's singles champion in lawn tennis in 1881 which he won at the newport casino which he actually won one at the course court that he's playing in here two years later, 1883, he would go on to win seven consecutive men's singles titles. It's actually still the record today. He's there's two other people who also have won seven uh seven men's singles titles, but Dick Sears, the very first one, is still the one to do it well, obviously do it first. I think he's the only one who do it consecutively, and he's only one of three men to ever win seven singles titles at all. So the title that he will win in eight that day he's already won in eighteen eighty one is the National, United States National Lawn Tennis Association, right? We know that today as the U.S. Open, which is played in my hometown of Queens, 10 minutes from where I grew up. So it's that that tournament that Dick Sears won in this show in 1881 is still played today, and it's the U.S. Open. 
I really love it when he adds in, you know, stuff like this into the story. It makes it feel so much more like alive and real. It's it's also a little unnerving, though, because I know he's I know he's dropping in real stuff, but I never want us to think that something that he just made up is real. And then we're going to go around like being like, no, that's really how it was in the Gilded Age. But really, it wasn't. But I mean, I mean, Lord Fellows is allowed to use his imagination. He's allowed to create scenarios that maybe didn't really happen. But at the same time, it's like because this subject is not something that I'm so well steeped in that if he tells me it happened, I, I'm, I'm going to believe you, Lord Fellows. So I hope that, that we're, we're, we're not picking on the wrong facts. Just the, just the research alone would be so much easier if I had access to his search history and to his oh library. Just so I, because I spent so much time looking up things. Like I knew you the do. name, I knew the name Dick Sears. So I knew that was going to be a real person. I, I was familiar. I used to be, a, I used to be really big into tennis in the mm-hmm. late eighties or early nineties. So I, I knew the name Dick Sears, but I, didn't know all the facts and figures about him so i went looking that up but i've lost a lot of time of my life looking up things that turned out not to be real people or real incidents so it's it's always a little bit of a crapshoot but i think that's a credit to uh, lord fellows's writing that you can't tell the difference a lot of times between something that really happened versus something that he just invented and inserted into this world uh, just the last thing on Dickie Sears, in addition to the seven uh, singles, he actually won doubles for six years from 1882 to 1887, after which he retired from tennis. So that was Dickie Sears, real guy, apparently friends with Larry Russell. I wonder if they went to school together. Maybe that's that the so story funny. of it. By the way, the guy that they cast. They were supposed to have gone to Harvard together, right? That's what they say. Mm, it was a friend must, from Harvard. That would make sense because uh, Dick Sears was born in Boston, so it makes sense that he went. Well, to Harvard. I didn't. I didn't even realize that Larry had gone to Harvard until he had said, "Yeah, I know Dick from Harvard." I, I think like, we did know that from season Ugh, one, but Harvard. they. Did, I, I think we did know that from season one, but I don't it's think they focused one of those on that didn't a lot. Stick. Yeah, yeah no, and it I didn't agreed. stick. Like, oh, this is a Harvard man. Like, it didn't stick in with me. Hey, you know what? I've got to. I've got to bring up. I got to bring up some of the costuming that we saw mm. at Newport because I got to say that the navy blue and white um, dress that Bertha was wearing striking as hell you guys I mean I like fell out of my seat when I even saw it in any of the previews or anything this is the juxtaposition to Gladys's outfits and I know that some of our Facebook group friends are like really trying to talk about like hey do you think it's because Bertha picks out Gladys's clothes and maybe that's why she dresses sort of more juvenile than we would expect her to at this point totally agree with that but man I gotta say Bertha's got taste and style and Carrie Coon is killing it. I mean, she is she is owning those dresses, right? Because sometimes when you can see, especially more modern day actresses who you may know from other works, when you see them wear a period piece, it looks like they just put on like almost like those snap on doll dresses where it just like snaps on the front and it looks so out of place. It doesn't look like you could actually imagine them wearing it. Carrie Coon pulls it off. She looks like she could have this in her closet. She could wear this to dinner and she could kick ass in it. Kudos to her and the costumer, of course, for finding this like mesh of what would be beautiful of the time, but also what can Carrie Coon pull off and look brilliant in, and she just does. I literally have in my notes, my favorite costume of the entire series was that outfit. I, I was blow, just blown away with, with it. Just the, the color and the fit and the style, but just the way she also wore it. I, I a thousand percent agree with you. I, 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 I'm not one to notice costuming as much as you, though I did notice that. Like I, I very much noticed it right away, stared at it for a bit. And I was like, wow, that, that's, that's pretty stunning. But then I also noticed it in the context of the blue and the white being so 
crisp and popping off the screen because Mrs. Blaine was wearing the white with the black trim. So it seemed like, I wonder if there's a little aspect of Mrs. Blaine that reminds him of Bertha, which is not uncommon or unheard of in, in young people and their mates that they pick. So I, it, it's interesting. If look at look at their outfits. They don't look anything alike, but at the same time, they also have a similarity to them. Uh, if you look at them kind of side by side, so I wonder if there's something also working there—a um, strong-headed uh, <laughs> woman who knows herself that he would be attracted to. Not not to page Doctor Freud into the room. Well, and I'd, I'd also like to say, I mean, God, for for any young person, when you meet somebody who is so comfortable in their own skin and is so comfortable in their own sexuality, there is something very alluring about that because you yourself are so insecure about your young self and your young body and everything that when you actually meet someone who's interested in you and knows what they're doing and really just exudes that confidence that is so sexy you know i don't care if you're a man or a woman it's very sexy to be so sure of yourself let's talk about george popping up to newport something that he was pretty sure he wasn't going to do because he's having all of his pittsburgh problems one of the things he sets into motion is that he asks clay he sends clay to pittsburgh to talk to Mr. Henderson, who is the president of the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steelworkers, which was a real labor union that was formed in 1876. Uh, it would have go on to eventually become of what we know as the United Steelworkers, which I think is uh, a union that uh, anyone living in the last, you know, 50 years has probably heard of. Anyway, so he sends Clay to Pittsburgh to try and offer Mr. Henderson money and or power in order for backing off the steelworkers from their growing unrest. It doesn't work. He tells Clay to invite Henderson to New York so he can talk to him, puts him up at the Brunswick Hotel, which was a real hotel. There'll be some information. I have a couple of pictures from it, actually. It was a real hotel down in the 20s on Fifth Avenue um, at this time. That's funny. I found a website that listed the 160 65 reputable hotels that were in existence in, in 1882. So the Brunswick Hotel was one of those reputable hotels that existed. So he goes to Newport, and one of the first conversations is Bertha tells him about Larry. Boys will be boys. He says, I'm having Henderson to lunch, and I need your help on that. So they're kind of exchanging their favors that they need from each other, which is a strength of their marriage. They know they know what the other does well and enlists their help when it's necessary. But then he pulls her outside and pushes her up against the wall and kisses her, and you know about the, they're about to go to Bone Town. So, you know, I see where Larry gets it from. Look at his parents. They're, they're about to hump in the middle of the day, and I love that, and I love watching these two. I could watch Carrie Coon. I would watch all sorts of movies with Carrie Coon and Morgan Spector. Let's just, <laughs> let's not be twisted. Like, I would absolutely pay money for that. I, yeah, but you know what? They, like, they like really, like, shook my brain because I can remember having a friend when I was in, like, middle school whose parents took naps in the middle of the day. <laughs> Afternoon delight. Oh, my God. It was all coming together as I was watching the wrestles. I was like, I don't think they're going to sleep. <laughs> Caroline is realizing the meaning. You're realizing the meaning of afternoon delight. Take uh, a nap. A, a Take full... a nap. <laughs> I feel like not my little gumdrop buttons. 
come, honey. We need to nap together. <laughs> exactly. I was just like, oh, my Lord. Yeah. So, let. I mean, I love those moments between George and Bertha. And we need those moments because their relationship is the foundation of the new money fight. If it wasn't for the Russells, this stuff wouldn't be happening. So we need that touch base of going back and being like, remember George and Bertha? Remember what their relationship is like? And remember what they want for their kids then? And, and very different between Bertha and George. But still, they have their reasons. And I love to see these these moments between them. Uh, let's take it to the end when they're together. But then I want to backtrack to George and Gladys and George and Oscar, because I think that's its own interesting discussion for a man and a father at this time of marriages of convenience. But let, let's finish off the Newport section. Let's go to the McAllister Ball. I love Ward McAllister. You know, give me all the foghorn, leghorn, you know, uh, bone monts that he wants to <laughs> toss out. But him just having no shame in explaining to Bertha to her face, and I think it's a sign of respect for Bertha that he doesn't try to bullshit her. He says, I, I'm a winner either way. If she she loses, I get to counsel her in defeat and be a comfort to her. And if she wins and beats you, which I'm saying to your face, even though you're taller than me and you could probably hurt me, <laughs> then I've been an ally all along of the victor. I love that. Like, duplicitous is fuck, but he doesn't hide it. Like, I'm not about duplicity, but I appreciate someone who's got the stones to just be like, I'm all McAllister, you know, like, I love it. Flowers and feathers by the sea, my dear. That, give me all of that all day. I don't know how you feel about Ward and, and how he oh, plays all of the Ward. sides all the time. I actually find that the conversation between Ward and Bertha and the conversations between Lena Astor and Bertha to always be surprisingly honest. They find ways to say things as to not completely, you know, like eviscerate the other one, but they say some like cruel truths sometimes, you know, and the other one has to kind of just listen to it and, and it can be very blunt, but they've put it in some way that they can kind of save face and answer to it. But like, even when we've seen conversations with like Mrs. Astor and Bertha, where Bertha's like, yeah, but you know, probably new money is going to come in. And then like Mrs. Astor has to respond like there's this push and pull that goes on that's a very it's done with good manners but if you really look at the words they're pretty biting comments yeah no they're all savage as fuck it, <laughs> like they are really biting if you need to learn how to argue or how to cut your enemies off at their knees with a smile on your face everyone should have to watch bertha mrs astor and agnes van ryan all talk to each other because they are masters at the biting remark that just eviscerates while there's a smile and everyone is sipping tea. It's really fascinating and so much more savage than any of the men are. Give me all the long Jagul beards you want and his gruff posturing between him and George across the table from each other. None of that comes close, holds a candle at all to Mrs. Astor and Bertha sniping at each other, you know, while they each hold a teacup in their hand. It's fantastic. I never get tired of it, ever, ever, it's just, ever. It's such excellent writing, and it's also just the way that they can deliver these lines, and nobody, like, actually gets to the point of being like, oh, whatever, I'm so offended. But at the same time, if you listen to what they're saying, they are very offensive remarks. <laughs> and I think they are offended, but they also, but they, they, but they appreciate back. it. Yes, but they bite back. They don't take it. I think they they appreciate the fight, as much as they detest the fight. I think there's very much an aspect of Mrs. Astor that likes how feisty Bertha is, even if she would never admit it. 
because I think she's probably sees herself in Bertha, you know, just many years prior. And I think there's something in Bertha that admires Mrs. Astor that for as long as she, that she's been the queen bee for as long as she's been. I think that's something that Bertha really admires. She wants to dethrone and bury her. Uh, but I think she also very much admires that and is inspire her. It's kind of like when you have, when you want to be, let's use tennis. Let's say I would have had Pete Sampras's poster on my wall, right? I love Pete Sampras. I watched all of his matches. The hairy, sweaty guy, that was like right on my alley. Like that was me. I was Pete Sampras, a hairy, sweaty kid. It would have been my dream to destroy Pete Sampras in the U.S. Open. But I admired him, and he would have been an inspiration to me, right? Isn't that kind of what we're dealing here? And I would like to think Pete Sampras would smile and be like, man, I helped I helped inspire that kid who just destroyed me, embarrassed me, and, and you know, and ended my career. There's kind of a duality and a mutual respect in someone who is as vicious in taking you down as you are in trying to keep them down. But Ward is keeping the surprise at his ball for the very end because he doesn't know about the bombshell he's about to drop into the Russell's lap, but we do. So I think we need to meet the new Mrs. Winterton, who is new money and ambition, but old money in her bank account because she has married an old guy, Mr. Winterton. Let's listen. Your former lady's maid is now your neighbor in Newport? Welcome to America. Father, you're very quiet. What does that say? Nothing. Until you're alone and back at the house. And I'll decide what we say. If we say anything at all. I gotta tell you, I loved that scene because it's one of the few times we see all four Russells standing together. And I actually really would like to see that a lot more. It was like Larry, George, Bertha, Gladys, like in a row. And to see them as like Team Russell, it's kind of the first time we saw them like that. Um, Like really in that lineup and everything. And I need more of that because I think Russells, if they could work together as a group instead of like parents v. kids and all this crap... They could be such a strong winning team that I want to see that. I want to see more of these four-person teams. It was refreshing to see them all standing shoulder to shoulder. I I like that they don't fight. I like that they're a solid unit. It would be so easy for them to have Larry and Gladys bicker and snipe at each other. But they don't do any of that. And George and Bertha have always been presented as such a steadfast couple, even when they disagree. Uh, which, you know, I think there were maybe a couple times in season one where they had a falling out or they were sore with each other. But it was always short-lived and it was always it always wound up where he, you know, he was pushing her up against a wall or she was pushing him up against a, a wall. And, you know, they were about to, you know, be all made up about it. I I like the Russells. I think the Russells are a great family in any time period. So it was nice to see them standing shoulder to shoulder, but also some great face acting. I mean, the kids are shocked. (laughs) Yeah, you got to look. It was awesome. It was awesome to see that happen to all four of them. Like, just the, the slap in the face was so visible across them. I just, it struck me that it was the first time I was looking at the Russells as four adults. Four adults on the same team fighting for their place in the world. And all four of them felt that attack of Miss Ginny, of Miss Ginny, of Miss Turner's face, like looking at them, you know, like there was something about it that really united them that we haven't had in the same way. You have to think Miss Turner practiced that entire scene in her head, what, three months, two months? Uh, like, I feel like the machinations that she needed in order to make that happen 
get back across from Europe. I mean, she went across to 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 Europe, met this guy, married this guy, got him back here in New York, got herself invited to McAllister's ball, and got herself to walk up a path behind him, like a little duckling waddling behind him, just for that moment, just to see Bertha Russell's face smile, twist, and fall, and all of the blood to rush out of George's face in one moment. How good, I mean, obviously we don't like Miss Turner, but how good must she feel at this particular moment? No matter what else happens, no one can take that away from her. Oh my gosh, I can imagine that she had been dreaming about this probably as a little girl, but most (laughs) especially sleeping in the Russell's house. George was a plan, but the idea of just becoming a lady in this society was the bigger plan. Whether it's George, it was going to be somebody else, even if it wasn't him. But yeah, you're 100% right. Actually showing up there at your previous employer, now matching them toe-to-toe, I mean... That's got to be that's got to be sweet revenge for any employee, really. Right. It's like it's like undercover boss kind of feeling when but like the reverse, like you, you know, you've surprised your employer, like really interesting. And like, what a cool twist. It's like when the employee like gets to buy the company. Like, <laughs> yeah, faggot, jackass. You know, it's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm taking a dog, jackass, but that, but like better even. So, and we totally saw. That. I mean, obviously, it was it was told to us. Keep your eye on Miss Turner; she's coming back. Like this is going to happen, but it was still like really amazing when it happened. Let's talk about George, who has to deal with matters of the heart at the beginning of this episode. We're we're doing we're doing it last in the Russell discussion, but it actually happened pretty early on in the episode. Uh, to frame it, Gladys is refusing to go to Newport because her affairs, i.e., Oscar and his proposition, have not been dealt with. So George is in receipt of Oscar's letter, which he told Gladys he would write, and he did. It's going to be George talking to Gladys, and then it's going to be George talking to Oscar. I'm going to play them back to back just to so we can compare them and contrast them. And in, in, in his tone, where he's a loving father versus a stern dad, you know, talking to a suitor that he doesn't believe. I think it's an interesting juxtaposition listening to them back to back. So let's take a listen. He gave me the reasons why I should accept his offer. That was clever of him. He asked me if I wanted to get away from mother, and of course I do. Oh, dear. I don't want to get away from you, but I must be allowed the freedom to make my own decisions. Marriage is not the place to look for freedom. May I ask if you love him? There is that, but these days so many people marry without love. Which I assume means you do not. He comes from a good family, and there is some money, and I'd be in society, which is what Mother wants. He can be very amusing. He does make me laugh. That is a useful quality, I grant you, but it is not enough to base a marriage on. May I make you an offer? What if I were to promise to support your choice whenever you come and tell me you have fallen in love? Even if Mother is against it? Even then. I give you my word. What will you do with Mr. Van Ryn? Let him down gently. And then I suggest we forget about this whole thing. Did it not occur to you to speak to me before you addressed my daughter? I suppose I was carried away. Well, the answer is no. Gladys will not agree to be your wife. Uh, is that it? Am I to have no chance to put my case? I've uh, I brought papers 
proving my financial status. And I'll inherit my mother's house on 61st Street, so Gladys's home would be right across from yours. You are welcome to show me what you like. I'm not in a hurry. But nothing will alter my conclusion. You know that I'm very much in love with her. Well, that is what I do not quite know. But you are right to claim it, since a love match is the one thing I'm determined on for her. Then I can assure Please. you that I do... you have not convinced her, and you will not convince me. I think you may genuinely like her. And that you intended her to be happy in her life with you. More than Let I... Let me finish. I understand these marriages of convenience take place in every fashionable church in this city. But I want more than that for my child. Of course you do, and I can Let only... Let us leave it there, Mr. Van Ryan. And now you should go. There's actually a ton to unpack there. Uh, it was probably actually a mistake to play them back to back because I think they're so jam packed. But let's talk about his dealing with Gladys first. I think one, it's interesting for him to say that marriage is not the place to go looking for freedom. Oh gosh, I think there's so many people who like gasped at that line when they saw it because it's so so true. And also, you just want to like really wrap your arms around Gladys and be like. Why has no one spoken to you about the expectations of becoming a wife in this society and what it will entail? Like, I really think that she has looked at Bertha as a role model for so long that she's really turned a blind eye to the majority of the women that are actually existing in her world. I don't actually think she has a lot of access to other households. So... As much as I'm like feeling like, oh, poor, naive Gladys, it's like, yeah, but how, where do I where do I think she should have gotten these ideas? Again, no social media. She doesn't seem to go to school or have, you know, she has her friend. Um, well, she like also Carrie didn't play, she didn't, right, she didn't, well, she didn't grow up playing with the Carrie mm-hmm. Astors, though. She's getting all of this because of the way really Bertha, fast. right, because Bertha didn't have access to get her in a playroom with Carrie. You know they would have mm-hmm. been in a crib the together preschool. playing in a preschool together. <laughs> a if, thousand if percent. She's couldn't. Yeah. This is all fascinating that George is actually having to be the one to put his foot down and say, look, I'm not going to marry you off just to like expand an empire. You know, I want you to be loved and I want you to love the person you marry. That is refreshing, of course. You know, in any piece of entertainment we see, that's kind of not really the message. It's usually like you need to do what's good for the family. You know, you understand your your job here. I'm watching The Crown right now. Uh, I just watched the four episodes that just came out. And, you know, the idea of responsibility to the family and what you should be doing, what's your role, so strong, you know. I don't know if George can actually maintain this point of view because Bertha is going to shove some practicality down his throat. I want to think she has the luxury to just marry for love, but I don't know. I don't know if that's a possibility. You hit the nail on the head. I I really love the advice and his commitment to her finding a, a love based match. When he when he says to Oscar, everyone else may be down for these marriages convenience, but not on my house, not on my watch. That's a paraphrase because no one spoke like not on my house, not on my watch back and then. But uh, the idea of he won't, that's not what he wants for his daughter, will not have for his daughter. I love. Here's the problem. He and he says he'll stand up to Bertha and support Gladys in the face of Bertha's for sure disapproval of this path. But will he actually? Because as soon as maybe he needs Bertha to help with a Henderson situation or help make an introduction with a banker or do this or do that, 
I don't know that he will be able to continue to stand next to his daughter. So I feel like this is an example of George having the right motivations and his heart being in the right place, but not really using his brain making this promise. It feels inevitably some promise is going to get broken in here. Either he is going to do irreparable damage to his marriage, or he is going to break a promise to his daughter, or maybe screw up both and do both in the same act of trying to walk a line. So I I love the sentiment, but practically speaking, I agree with you. I think George maybe might have bitten off more than he can chew here. I don't know that one man can so stand in the middle of the river with his hands outstretched and stop the flow, no matter how much money he has, if all of society, the people, including the people that Gladys will have to choose from to marry, because he says Oscar Van Ryan is not good enough for you. You can do better. Well, okay, if we're taking Oscar off as someone she can do better than, Oscar, other than the sexual attraction, does fit a lot of the things that I think any father would want for their daughter. There is financial stability there. God forbid something happened to George, right? The Van Ryans aren't as rich as them, but they have money. He will make her laugh. He will take care of her. He will treat her like a human and an equal, maybe not a a partner or at least not a 50-50 partner, but a partner more than she's going to find elsewhere. So if you're saying, Oscar, you can do better than Oscar, well, then you're immediately taking off a lot of possible prospects because I think there's a lot of guys out there that are much worse than Oscar. Probably the majority of guys are worse than Oscar. So if that's where we're starting... George has greatly reduced the field of possible suitors available to Gladys that he will approve of, that Bertha will approve of, that Gladys will approve of, love or otherwise. So it's interesting. It feels like something that's very bold and sounds great, but when shit comes, you know, hits the fan, where is it going to, where is he going to stand? Where are the chips going to fall? That that was kind of my takeaway from it. For sure. And I, and I think that it's important to remember, there's not like an infinite amount of names that are appropriate for her match, whether it be their age or their money or their status in society or whatever. Like, it's not as big of a pool as we'd all like to think it would be. It's, again, take out all the online matches, take out the fact that she's not traveling to sit all over the place to meet people like there is a finite pool of people and so again George can sort of like stand on righteousness and principle and seen him call a name out and say well what about this guy he seems like a good guy maybe you should get to know him you know like it's you're not bringing solutions to the table George you're just saying not him but then who who's good enough it's so funny that Aurora tries to set Marion up with Edward Morgan, who is just a banker at her husband's bank. He's not an owner. He's 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 just probably a rich investment banker, not unlike a million rich investment bankers that anyone today could go meet if they hung out at a bar downtown in Manhattan. And Aurora is trying to set Marion up with him and someone that Agnes is, is very happy for him to be because of his mother and the connections that she has. And born a Winthrop, I think she says. George and Bertha literally sent their young prospering investment banker that their daughter did in fact love or at least like or love in a way that young uh, or older teenagers say they they'll say the word love 
who wasn't a promising investment banker, and they sent him literally to another country to get away from their daughter. So acceptable matches is an interesting concept. Like I said, bring a solution, bring a name to the table, George, and then we'll talk about how you're standing in your righteousness. Uh, Honestly, Larry's the best match for Gladys. I mean, if (laughs) if they were just a little, if they were just a little more European. No, but you know what? I think Larry, like, let's bring that up. So if Larry is indicative of the pool of suitors that she has to deal with, I mean, we've already now seen, like, the behind the scenes on that group of guys. Guess what? They're either with prostitutes or with other women who will sleep with them right now. So I don't know. How appealing is that? You know, if you could find somebody else who is, like, coming to you and being like, I don't want to do those things, that might seem very appealing. Messy, 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 messy. (laughs) Very Oh man, we have uh, we have exhausted the Russells. So let us let us move on. We actually still have some downstairs business to take care of the Russells, but we could do that later in in, in downstairs entry corner as we wrap up. Uh, let's talk about Peggy real quick before we head over to the Van Ryan's house. Were you surprised that Agnes was as kind and as willing to accept Peggy back? into her good graces such that to the extent that she would even then go and and tell Turner where things stand in no unconditional terms, which was something that she did not do when this came to a head last time that forced Peggy to leave when her she ran afoul of Armstrong. Did that surprise you? Given Agnes feels grumpier this season, but she was very kind and very supportive of Peggy here. Yeah, I I don't think it did surprise me. I think that something had to be said, like a stand had to be taken with Armstrong in order for any of us to feel comfortable with this moving forward, most especially Peggy. But like we we all needed to feel like Armstrong can't get at Peggy without some repercussions. I was actually more disturbed at... Armstrong's like crying about it. She was acting like it was out of her hands to be ugly to Peggy. Like, how could anyone expect her to be remotely nice to her? Like, that really threw me. Like, it it would be one thing if she had said something like, I don't know, like, I try so hard. I I need to be better with my own manners or, or whatever. But like her, like wailing at Agnes, like you would let me go and no one else would even train me. It's like, girl, this is all in your hands. Like you don't <laughs> just don't be mean to somebody. <laughs> and she seemed like it. she couldn't not be mean, which just was like, I don't even know if I could keep her on just for that response. Like if you really cannot keep yourself from being that mean to somebody else i don't think i can have you in my house like period too much bad mojo you know i'm willing to take my chances with miss scott but not with you i never started anything ma'am in fact we never had a problem until miss scott moved in because you created trouble for her as soon as she arrived i wanted to protect your good name Hmm. it has been some years since my good name was in any danger now i need your word You will only treat Miss Scott with courtesy and respect. But what if she's unkind to me? Then knowing Miss Scott, I'd say you had it coming. And if that is too much to ask, Bridget looks after Miss Ada and Miss Marion. She can see to me as well until I found a replacement. You would replace me? Well, if you cannot behave, you leave me no choice. But what would I do? How would I live? Oh, there's no need for this. I mean, you can get another job. No. People like to train a maid when there are many years left in her. No one will want to bother with training me, not now. Here. 
Your fate is in your hands. If you show kindness to Miss Scott, then you may keep your position. But, ma'am... I see you have mistaken this for a discussion when I am simply giving an order. I mean, she's totally right to say what the point that you just made. That she literally says, this is all in your control. No one is forcing you being a bitch. But also at the same time, she says things like, all you have to do is behave. Like, that's how you talk to a child, not to a very old woman. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know how old Armstrong is. She's probably not as old as Agnes, but she's definitely a woman of advanced age. She's old enough that she can't be trained at another house. We have to tell her that she has to behave? Why, why does she need to be told that at all? That's what surprised me. And that's what surprised me that like her attitude of like, I can't behave. I'm just incapable of, of doing what you're asking me to do. That alone would be like, man, you're more messed up than I thought. Armstrong. like, I didn't even know I needed to have this conversation where I, where I was going to have to tell you to be cool with all the rest of the staff. But now you're wailing at me that like, you're not even capable of being nice to the rest of the staff. To me, I'm like, you just kind of signed your, your walking papers, friend. Like, I don't know how we continue. It does is Armstrong's gross dislike, and, and I mean gross not only in a way, but also like in, in, in an immense way. Is her yeah. immense dislike of Peggy based out of racism? This is a post reconstruction, you know, world that we're living in. And obviously Miss Armstrong is a woman who was around and, and not a small child when the Civil War would have taken place. Or is this her being threatened by a competent, educated, younger, much younger woman coming in to Miss Agnes's room and having her confidence and her support and, and, and Armstrong feeling threatened in her position, in her status. Because as the lady's maid, she's presumably Agnes's number one confidant, as she probably sees it. Peggy certainly seems like someone who can threaten that. Or is it both things? Is she a, a shitty racist and also being feeling threatened, do you think? Well, I think that I, racism is definitely a part of this, for sure, because, you know, they, they were very clear and they've done a really good job, I think, through Peggy's parents of reminding us of the racism in season one. Her father talked a lot about it in season two. You know, we're, we're, we're getting some feels of that, of like, hey, you need to, you need to kind of, you know, watch yourself where you are, what you're doing. So I think that racism is definitely there. We cannot overlook that at all. Additionally, though, I think that this is still kind of old ways, new ways, right? So the fact that she has a writing job, she has a job outside of a kitchen or mending clothes or anything like that. Like Armstrong is very confronted with like, hey, some people want more than what you want. And I think that alone is very intimidating to her and and like an affront to like to what she thinks is like a respectful, good, hard day's work. And it's like, here's Peggy doing those things and also writing for a newspaper and also having these like bigger ambitions. I think that alone like very much threatens any person like Armstrong and their sort of lot in life. They don't want to feel like, Anybody is telling them that what they do is not like enough, like ambitious enough. Right. And I think that we do see this conflict a lot with like working class 
people, especially when it comes to racism, especially during this time, but during lots of different periods of time when the people who like fight the hardest are the people who are kind of on the same level and they're trying to create like a hierarchy because it just makes them feel better. So Armstrong can try to feel like righteous, like she's better than Peggy, even though she is not, not at all. And but she just can't handle, you know, like this. I don't know what else to call it besides just a threat that Peggy is like smarter, younger, faster, more ambitious than her, you know, period, regardless of any other part that Armstrong sees. I would love to think that Armstrong could change her ways, but I don't think Armstrong makes it out of this season. Do you? No, I, I, she can't because there's no redeemable threat to her. Even uh, let's let's fast forward to when she literally won't give Peggy uh, some of the clothes to men that need to be mended, but then hands them over to Bridget, who then in, ends up enlisting Peggy to help her anyway. It looks like the way Armstrong reacts to the pile when it's when Peggy pushes it towards her is as if there was a steaming pile of poop on the on the top. That that's the face that she literally makes, and it requires Mrs. Bauer and Mr. Bannister, the other two elderly state people in the room, to force her to say thank you for it. There, there's there's nothing redeeming here because. Then we get this clip, and, and I'm proud of Peggy in this scene, but I think this re this reveals as much about who Armstrong really is and the fact that she's not redeemable as anything else. Let's take a listen. What's this? I helped Bridget with the sewing. I couldn't do it all. Is this some sort of trick? It seems as if Miss Scott has done you a good turn, Miss Armstrong. Aren't you going to say thank you? Thank you. You're welcome. Bridget, come and help me. I confess I'm surprised. That I did you a favor? No, not exactly. I'm surprised you were allowed back into this house. I have no quarrel with you, Miss Armstrong. I mean it. But I promise you do not want one with me. I mean, why would it? Did you not listen to anything that Agnes told you upstairs? It's as if she didn't. I'm surprised you're let back into this house. You don't. You clearly don't appreciate how close you were and should have absolutely lost your job. Ada hates you and wants you fired. Marion hates you and wants you fired. Agnes only keeps you there because you know how to dress her, and she doesn't want to train someone else. But she, even she's at the point of letting Bridget, the Russell's Adelaide, dress her. Could you imagine? Could you imagine Bridget getting through a dressing with Agnes? That's where we're at. That's how that's how thin the ice is for you, Armstrong. And this this is the way you're going to pursue this conversation after Agnes has that conversation with you. Come on, no hope for her. Zero hope, and she just she just is so stuck on it. I like I'm shocked. I've really not seen a character who's been talked to so directly told like this is what you're doing and if you keep this up you're going to be fired who has such little <laughs> like like self-awareness that she could just be like well then i'm gonna lose my job <laughs> and you're like why not just behave what the hell you know right like 
it's inevitable. Like, I'm going to keep yes. being a bitch. You might as yeah, well. I'm, gonna, like, I'm, I'm definitely going to get fired. I'm yeah. definitely going to wig out. Like, <laughs> it doesn't matter. And you're like, like I'm going Whoa. downstairs right now to wig out because she did me a favor. <laughs> like, like, it's happening right now, Agnes. <laughs> yeah craziness so i i mean i was really surprised and i do not see armstrong making it out of this and you know what nor should she because she is representative of this really old stodgy antiquated thinking that needs to go so just in the spirit of the show i feel like you, we gotta toss armstrong out just to get that kind of thinking erased from this story we're telling you know right. there needs to be a thinning of the older herd a culling plus plus getting rid of armstrong has the secondary narrative aspect of forcing Agnes to move forward with progress. I mean, she's already allowing a young woman of color to work for her, which is progressive given Agnes and everything else about her. But losing Armstrong would be just another way of moving her across the street, as it were. Remember remember, we watched her walk across the street to uh, Bertha's Ball last year and snarking the entire way. We hear, you know, Mrs. Astor is coming to her tea room next week, which we will see in next week's episode, to strategize how to defend the Academy of Music against Bertha and the onslaught of the Mets. But losing someone like Armstrong will force Agnes to move forward in time. I hope so. Or at least maybe, you know, she's confronted with probably some of her own prejudices and some of her own old ideas in Armstrong. We haven't exactly drawn that, like, you know, from dot A to dot B. But obviously Armstrong is voicing a lot of the old thoughts that Agnes would have had. Now, Agnes maybe, is turning out to be... maybe Agnes's husband, who... That's very true, Arnold, right. right? We are seeing Agnes present a much more progressive attitude, but it's clear to me that Armstrong wouldn't have made it in this house as long as she had had Agnes not actually changed some of her viewpoints as she went along. Like, she clearly must have aligned better with Armstrong at some point. So, yeah, I think there's maybe through Armstrong's lack of growth, I'm seeing Agnes's growth. I hope that makes sense. I think that's a great way of putting it. I, I, yes. Uh, two more points on Peggy. One, or, or Peggy's story anyway, I really loved Mr. Scott here. Not only the fact that he didn't push back on her and allowed her ultimately to take her leave he could have made this much more difficult for her but man i really love the dad move of just kind of giving him giving her all of the cash in his pocket you know just, just hold on to this you know she's a working woman she's making a salary she's got two jobs now because she's going back to the globe it just felt like a real dad move to me I, I i'm curious if this moved into your heart at all given how angry we all are at mr scott generally about how he behaved this this seemed like a nice isolated dad moment though I really enjoyed that scene because I felt like Mr. Scott, like not only, you know, did exactly how my dad would do, which is like pull out his wallet, give some money. I mean, that's like par for the course for me. But also, I thought of your dad, too. Is that you funny? Did? I did. Yeah. I felt like a <laughs> felt like a Mr. Cups, this kind of thing to do. based on It your is stories. a Mr. Cups, this type of thing for sure, for sure. And um, but additionally, I thought it was very telling all their relationship and where we are status wise when he's like, and remember, your mother really loves you like that whole thing instead of him saying I love you like the ice is still there. You know, we're not we're not there yet to where he's he's willing to be that like mushy 
and open with her. But it was nice to even see that because, I mean, you know, first season we were dealing with like a lot of anger between the two of them and a lot of pushing and pulling. And this actually seemed really nice that she could leave in in such a good place that he would actually like give her money to go and stuff and sort of wish her well. Like that was very a, a very big vote of confidence in Peggy, I think. We talked a lot last week in the premiere about can you ever forgive Mr. Scott if you're Dorothy, if you're Mrs. Scott? And and, and maybe not. But as a person watching it, I, you know, and I always want to be able to have a redemption arc, you know. So you, you look at Mr. Scott and then you, like, look at Armstrong. Maybe, maybe the two biggest villains on the show from their actions – based around Peggy, uh, let, let's say, anyway, actually, as it works out. I feel like Mr. Scott has a path to redemption here because he's at least showing contrition or or humility and some, some, some humbling, it seems to have occurred here, versus, I think, how Mr. Scott would have handled this scene last season before his secret was found out or before Peggy's son's existence secret was found out versus Armstrong, who we finished just talking about how she seems to have no path to redemption, no threads we can pull on where maybe she cleans up her act at this point. So it's an interesting and it's interesting that Peggy is kind of at the focus point of both of their ire in so many ways or transgressions in so many ways. I actually wanted to point out something that I thought that he did when we're going back to that sort of like asking questions or saying things that you don't want the answer to like Bertha did. Mm. I really gave him some props for not bringing up like, so, hey, if the writing thing doesn't work out, you can always come back and work at the pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Like he never said that, which I think is a huge change from season one, Mr. Scott, because he was still trying to undermine the writing gig and trying to, you know, give her guilt trips about taking over the business. And stuff like that that all didn't happen this time and could have he could he could have even just mentioned it in with a smile and a wink like hey we're always still here wink wink but he didn't say he didn't try to make her feel like your work is not good enough or insecure about what she was going off to do which i thought was huge progress hard-headed dads in the middle of their life are hard to change those are the dogs that are oldest and hardest to learn new tricks so the fact that we see any kind of growth from Mr. Scott here, minimal as it may be, as as much as you may have to go look for it. And I think you're bringing up a really good point because that's absolutely something he would have said before all of this. I don't want to say we applaud it, but I think we have to recognize it. I think if we're going to call him out for doing horrible things and keeping a horrible secret, I feel like maybe we also have to call it on the other side, too, when we do see some improvement in behavior over how we know he would have acted previously and like i said it's not like it's a mean thing for him to bring up to her or anything like that not really but as a parent i appreciated him not being like we're your safety net you know this is your place to be in case everything falls apart like it was like a real vote of confidence like you can do this i don't have to bring up safety nets i don't need to bring up alternative jobs you got this you know don't forget about us because we love you but i'm not going to keep trying to shove this pharmaceutical job down your throat either 
let, let's uh, let's finish off Peggy's story by going back to the Globe. Uh, we are back there as she's resuming her job with Agnes on 61st Street. She also seems like she's resuming her job at the Globe, which clearly she must have taken time off to mourn the death of Thomas and then the trip to Philly. And it seems like she spent most of the six months we were away down in Philly, I guess. We, we don't know that for sure, but that seems to be the takeaway from last week's episode. So obviously she wasn't working at the Globe at that point. So she's back. She's talking to Mr. T. Thomas Fortune. Uh, she seems like she's handed in some kind of article. Anyway, they're talking about the loss of a child. So Mr. Spring last week mentioned that she, he and Peggy shared a bond of a child, and so few people can understand that in the grand scheme. I think even fewer people can understand the loss of a child, uh, which is obviously something Mr. Spring and Peggy share. But we learn here that T. Thomas Fortune, or we're going to call him Thomas, and his wife also lost a baby a few years ago. And it's not something Peggy knew about. It's He says it's not something people really feel comfortable talking about. It's interesting to me, one, because now they share this very painful experience, which I think is a bonding mechanism because it is so visceral and painful and personal i think you are naturally drawn to people who will have shared a similar experience i think any kind of painful visceral visceral experience bonds you to someone else who can understand it but also it confirms that thomas is married which is something you and i speculated about last season that they never made clear though when i had done my research into the real person of t thomas fortune it did appear he was married now we have confirmation of that the fact that we're into season two, we have seen him not a ton. They haven't spent a ton of time at the Globe, but we've seen him enough and we've seen him interact with Peggy enough that this is the first time we're hearing about his wife. And it's only in the context of this horrible loss they they shared together. Did the loss of the baby maybe put a strain on their marriage? Maybe Mr. Fortune and his wife are maybe not as close anymore. Maybe their marriage isn't as strong anymore. We know in, in our various discussions we've had across many podcasts, something like this is a thing that can strain a marriage to the point of breaking, to the point of no return. Look at Mr. Scott and Mrs. Scott. Uh, yes, it was the secret of the child who then died, but look what it's doing to their marriage. And it wasn't even their child, it was their grandchild. Curious if you think about the fact that we're learning about this wife in the context of this specific story, is there something there? I mean, I've always felt that there was chemistry between them. We talked a lot about the idea of would they bring up the fact that he had a wife in real life? We knew that. Was this going to come into play or was this not? And then there's so much chemistry between them, but I, I really, I do not want to see Peggy in some sort of like illicit affair situation. I mean, she is too strong of a character for me that I don't want her to feel like she needs to settle for someone else's husband, basically. Like, I want her to feel like she is someone's first pick. She is someone's, like, everything. And even though he seems like a great guy and he seems like, you know, he obviously has a lot of ambition. He's he's doing a lot with, with everything he can. Now that they've brought up that he's married, I am feeling she's got to almost, like, pass away in order for, for this to go okay. Because we know divorce is not going to be a thing during this time. So, and I, I actually, the fact that he brought it up with the with the information of losing a child together i really felt like that was even more of a sensitive situation like peggy should should really be careful not to make the the wife feel 
in any way intimidated, you know, like, I don't know. So we're, we'll see how any of this can possibly work out. That's the thing, though. There is a spark there, and I don't quite know what to do with that. That's the rub, though, right? Sharing such a sensitive thing viewed from the most favorable lens is he's probably never had someone that he felt could appreciate the gravity of it enough to share with. So he's telling her, it doesn't seem like something he, he just, it's not how he leads conversations with strangers, but at the same time, and it's a double-edged sword. It is so personal. How can it not bond them together more? Just Mm -hmm. the shared grief. Peggy's story should not be her being the other woman in, in, in some kind of affair or love or whatever, no matter, no matter how romantic or perfect they can make Thomas and Peggy appear together. You can't have her be the other woman. She's too pure of heart for that. And her character and what she represents in the show, I think, is too pure to be that person. And I think it's unfair to make her and put her in that position because it's a it's a lose-lose proposition for Peggy. Peggy can't win in that situation. And man, right. hasn't she suffered enough. But, and I'll say this to the show's credit, we're we're assuming we're going to head in this direction because this is how TV often goes and movies often go. A shared experience, two very attractive people with obvious chemistry. They're smart. They're drawn to each other's talents. They also have this very deep, personal, painful experience that they both can commiserate and really understand in a way that no one else has. It's It's empathy on top of sympathy. So we're making an assumption here, but to their credit, Neither has ever actually done anything beyond perfect professional courtesy. Platonic friends always involves a level of chemistry. But beyond that, there's never been anything actually untoward in their relationship, which is good. So I want to point out, like, we're making, or at least I'm making an assumption that it feels very natural for the show to try and put them together. The show itself, other than planting the seeds, has never actually push them together in any real way. There's never been like a, he turns at the same time she turns and they wind up chest to chest holding each other. And, and, right. you know, you know, it's nothing, nothing like that, nothing make cute or, or rom-commy, nothing like that at all. It's really much more rooted in season one and their conversations. And I think it was just for us, it was the first time that we saw Peggy be recognized for her talent, be actually talked to as a peer and as, as like a, like a legitimate coworker. And in, and remember, first season we're dealing with Armstrong we're dealing with all this like shade that's going on what's going on with Mr. Rakes like all that stuff remember all that stuff so now when we're coming into season two just a conversation with T. Thomas is enough for us to be like oh what's gonna happen there but really look at that eye contact he's given her Mm, right I mean like yeah look at his empathy over losing a child like I mean we're really pointing at things that like just shows that he's a good person um you know and a good boss and a good employer and all that kind of stuff but like really we're reading into their connection. And I think it's honestly just because it's the first time we saw anyone treat Peggy with that huge degree of respect. I think it's something we want for her, or at least I want for her. Not that the show has done anything. I don't want people to be like, ah, they're just saying the show's doing this way. I'm not saying the show's doing anything. I'm just saying it's it. the natural inclination feels like it's there. But it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because it do, it is the kind of story or experience that brings people closer while at the same time, maybe the same kind of experience that drives a wedge between Thomas and his wife. 
interesting to keep an eye on as the season progresses a lot. This is a lot. You and I talked about how episode two, initially we both watched it a couple of times. And I think my reaction, I think yours was, this is kind of like a fluff episode where a lot didn't happen. Or it felt like a continuation from episode one in a way that felt like we were just continuing on those storylines. But in a way that like it was so connected, it didn't feel like we had a ton to talk about in the second episode. But it obviously it's turning out like, no, y'all, we have opinions. Well, I think it's not even because of developments as much as the topics and themes that were at the source of the various things. So I don't think action-wise a lot did happen, but I think topic and theme-wise, I think it's kind of ripe for discussion and really taking stock of where these characters all are here at the beginning of season two. Uh, let's stay in uh, the Van Ryan household now that Peggy is back. Let's talk about good old Marion. Marion in different roles. One is Marion is teacher, but before we get to her as a teacher, and um, I, I want to know your thoughts of what you thought of her in the art class, I feel like I was deprived. I had a Return of the Jedi lunchbox for many years, a really cool aluminum one with a matching thermos, and I thought it was the bee's knees. I was not a Aware that a fishnet lunch sack was a thing that was on the table that I could have been bringing my packed lunch with me all of these years. That's very funny because I put in my notes a fishnet. <laughs> like, why is this like some sort of fishing net that she's using? This is the bag that they had. They funny. don't have any other kind of bag or knapsack yeah. or something. They're, I mean, the, yeah. weird. That Bauer's was weird. Like, Bauer's like, oh, here's my fishnet. Throw the lunch in there. Very weird to get. And to be carrying that down the street and everything, I would think everyone would be looking like, what the heck is that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Agnes continuing to be so nasty to her straight up says she's an embarrassment to her but yet lets the fishnet sack go like that's not where her ire is at Agnes, maybe you should be talking about her not about lying to you and her conspiracy but about the fact that she's sending your niece out into the streets with a sack of lunch in a fishnet was she gonna go <laughs> clamming afterwards good god she's gonna, she gonna go get funny. some tuna out in the ocean out in the east <laughs> river I thought as a teacher, I thought Marion was actually very convincing. I liked her interaction with Francis. It, it would be very reasonable that a kiddo that age would be frustrated by trying to do watercolors. And I thought it, I thought she handled it well. Like, you know, Francis here was going to like rip this up and throw it away. I was also sniffing out, could this be some stepmom mm -hmm. laying some foundation for that? And I liked the way she redirected her and was like, Hey, you know, why don't, why don't we just try again? And Francis was cool about like, okay, I'll like listen to you. I think it's a good dynamic to have between Marion and Francis that that really opens the door for her to be with Dashiell. So we'll see how that flies. But I'm glad that they bothered to give us some time between Marion and Francis. It really let us know, like, it's it's okay. You know, like, Francis likes her and Marion likes Francis. So if the thing with Dashiell goes down, it's okay. Like, that part's working out. Right. It's smart to present it this way because we see their interaction and Marion giving her good adult advice that you would want a teacher or a parent to give their child. You know, you can't succeed if you're afraid to fail. That's solid advice. I don't think she's, you know, breaking the bank on new thoughts here. But, I mean, as far as advice in the situation, it was the right thing to say. But it's also the kind of thing that you would hope a parent would say to a child if they came home with a project or something that they weren't happy with. Like, you've got to take chances. You've got to, you've got to put yourself out there if you want to succeed. And you can't be worried about failing because that's looking in the wrong way and sets the wrong tone clearly though it has the double-edged satisfaction though of endearing marion to francis because we see it immediately 
Marion comes outside. Francis and Dashiell, for some reason, haven't left yet, almost as if they were holding the carriage in case Miss Marion came outside. And it's mm-hmm. Francis, not Dashiell. It's Francis, the child, who says, we'll give you a ride home. Come on, on up into the carriage. And Dashiell obviously goes along with it. I don't think this is something they planned beforehand. Like, he's like, hey, kid, when she comes out, you say get in the carriage. We'll give her a ride. And, you know, I'm going to get you a new mom. I don't think that was anything like that. It's just Francis spearheading. It was very parent trappy, I felt. But, you know, I, I like it, though. It was organic versus they really could have hit us over the head in a more direct stepmom, I'm going to be your mom someday kind of way, you know? <laughs> right. No, I think they did a good job of showing us Marion and Francis together and then showing us the three of them together, sort of spelling out how the dynamic could look if this was going to happen. Um, and, you know, we'll see. If, I mean, I, it seems like they are heading this direction. Um, we've already gotten our consistent message that they are not blood relatives. So we have the blessing of the show for this to move forward. It was even in the episode recap that they do before the episode. Does that make us cousins? <laughs> Not quite. No. Uh, we all know what you mean. Let's talk real quickly about Oscar. I love Marion and Oscar. They're actually they're actually uh, a relationship on the show that entertains me, and I never think about them until the two of them are just on the screen together. And they actually have a lot of screen time alone together. I always enjoy their scenes, but I never think about them when I think about the scenes that I love and the interactions I love the most. But when they're on screen, I love their interactions. The way he kind of lays on her lap and he's lamenting at being over with Gladys. Well, and... he like flopped on the couch, which so was like dramatic. Really... So yeah, dramatic. but like really good because we haven't seen that's normal behavior, right? You come in, you come in your mom's house, you flop down on the couch, right? Not that's not weird at all, but we don't get to see that. We get to see prim and proper posture, blah, blah. Law, Oscar's always the one to make it more real. And even the way that Marion sat down and was like, what did you expect? Like, what do you think is going to happen? I, I have tons of cousins. I talk to all of them. Roy, we have like a cousin, like whole DM with all of us on it, all that kind of stuff. And so they, to me, seem like two cousins, like having an actual conversation multiple times where they can call each other out on stuff. They can question each other. They can protect each other, make each other laugh, all kinds of stuff. They're really solid duo that we should have more of on screen we should we absolutely should be and again I, they're so low-key but every time they're on screen i always find myself paying attention my it always holds my attention and i just love i love the chemistry and the interactions always i like how she's a confidant for him she doesn't really confide in him her concerns and i think it's a little bit trickier because most of her most of her issues are with his mother so it's a little trickier for her to share but Oscar doesn't have a lot of people he can also be his true authentic self with. And he can with Marion, even if he doesn't realize, I think he's being his true authentic self. Let's not overlook the fact that he gets invited to Newport. Aurora is not inviting him off the bat. It's Marion goes to Aurora and says, he's really having a hard time. Can you just invite him up to Newport? And she says, sure. That's that's Marion's doing. Marion's looking out for Oscar if Oscar doesn't even realize. And, and I think Oscar would probably be surprised. I'm sure he sees it very like I'm city mouse and she's country mouse. But at the same time, she's been in the city long enough now that she can get him to Newport, if, even if he can't get himself there. I thought it was incredibly cool of Marion to invite Oscar to ask Aurora, like, hey, could Oscar come along? Yeah. Like, And she's all like, I'll send him a note. Like, I, even that, like, I very much appreciated the family sort of like conspiring to help each other. Like, that was very sweet. And like actually looking out for Oscar, which just it felt so real to me. Again, making these characters come to life. And and then there is reciprocation when we get up to Newport, 
when Edward Morgan is being drunk and belligerent and 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 too possessive of Marion, it's really Oscar more than anyone, more than Larry, more than anyone who keeps running interference for Marion, and even eventually finally tells Edward, "Go sleep it off." Here's a bit of advice: go sleep it off. Like he he really protects her and he acts as a shield to her. Now I've never had the advances of a very large drunk man coming after me, but I imagine I would want someone. In that case, I would want if my if my wife or if my daughter were in that situation, I would want their cousin to come run interference for them. That would make that would make me happy, and I would expect that. And Oscar, not always the most chivalrous person. I don't think that's a quality we've seen a lot in him. I think he actually acts very chivalrous in this episode. I think he very much comes to Marion's aid. He senses the room. He senses Edward as an ass, and he intercedes on her behalf. I want to see more of that Oscar in. Entirely. That's the Oscar that I really can root for. Well, and it also shows, I think, a little change in his character. Because like you said, like we haven't seen all of this, um, you know, loving care and concern for all the rest of the family members. He kind of dives into the, you know, Agnes's home when he needs some reinforcement or whatever, and, and then wanders away, you know, without much to do. So it's nice to see him like invested in other family members. And it, you're right, man, having somebody, especially, I mean, again, remember this society, like women are kind of having to duck around men. They can't just be like, to their face like I'm not interested go away so awesome when someone else will stand up and say hey get scat you know like you're you're acting foolish and dude that guy was a scene if he was the one I was set up with I would be like Oh, my God. Especially, it wasn't just the drunkenness. It was all the ignorant comments, like when he's like, I don't waste my time in museums. Oh, my God. I have that in my notes so many times. Yeah, just like, what a bore. I I don't know. I would would not like any of that. (laughs) It was so so ludicrous because he says the dumb (laughs) phrase, like, I waste my time with museums. Then he gets interrupted. Is it Dashiell or is it Oscar joins the conversation? I think it may be Dashiell joins the conversation. And he's like, where was I? Oh, yeah. I don't like wasting my time with me. Like, <laughs> he has to repeat it. Like, he was like, listen, that's a really good bookmark. I'm going to repeat that to pick up my, you know, my whole statement. Yeah. I like that Aurora and Charles. Hey, we had a Charles sighting. They, 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 keep, yeah. they keep that, uh, you know, that guy locked away. We don't ever get to see Charles Fane. But here we are. And I like the two of them had the decency to be embarrassed at inviting this guy and trying to hook him up with Mary. And the idea that he's a completely different person at the office. I think we all know that guy. I was going to say, haven't we all been in that sitch where you like have someone and you're like, oh, I think I'm going to invite this coworker to this like group event. And then you do that and they, you see them out away from the office and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, <laughs> like, you are nothing what I thought. And they'll have some outlandish viewpoint that you're like, oh my God, how did this never come up at work? And now you're just like humiliating me. <laughs> puppies as it's in his spare time how did i not know that like there's always something right and you're like why did i take this leap but you know what i think that this is a good lesson for aurora and charles and and also i think for mary and herself like she's trying to be open and cool to being set up to people but mm-hmm. i think we can all tell that marion not unlike what george wants for gladys marion is going to have to have some feelings for someone all by herself not being set up not having this forced anything it's all it's going to have to happen organically which is why we're all glancing at you, Dashiell. Just a little hat tip. Uh, Edward Morgan in this episode was played by John 
bellman if we're going to call him a no fish drunk ass i want to at least credit the actor for doing such a good <laughs> job uh bringing him to life and the line was i don't waste my time on museums all right edward morgan i have not been able to verify whether uh, edward morgan or arabella morgan was was a real person obviously a banker with the last name morgan raises an eyebrow but there's no mm-hmm. obvious connection that i could find to the john pierpont morgan family and jp morgan is around obviously in this time in the morgan banking family has already founded what would become Chase Bank later on uh, at this point. So I I feel like there has to be, maybe he's like a fifth cousin or something, but I'm sure it's related. But he's also, he's just a guy. He's just an investment banker. He's just a banker. I keep saying investment banker because that's like a modern term you would hear, but he's just a banker in Charles's bank. He doesn't own the bank. He's just like a rich douchebag, like a thousand of, you could literally go downtown to Wall Street, to a bar around Wall Street tomorrow when the market's open at like five o'clock when the market's closed, go to a bar near Wall Street and you would find 19 Edward Morgans, 19 of them just hanging out to be like, hey, museums are dumb. So the main thing, though, about that and what what our listeners need to remember, though, is that the city is not full at this point and there's not all these all these bankers for her to choose from within her age range within her the money amount that she's supposed to find in somebody with agnes's rules and stuff so again still slim pickings it's not like there's thousands of men to choose from because there's a lot of rules societally of like who she can even date and hang around so unfortunately i think she's gonna have to go through a whole lot of men with a lot of crazy flaws including like like mr ranks the whole first season for god's sake you know like there's going to be a lot of disingenuous people in her life. A uh, big hat tip to Oscar's look in this episode. If, if we're going to say uh, <laughs> Bertha's blue and white ensemble was was uh, taking top prize here, his boater and the round sunglasses loved it. Absolutely loved it. I was like, this may be a look I have to use this coming this coming spring and uh, summer season. In, a, in seven Fancy. months from now. Yeah, I think, I don't know if I could pull it off. I don't know if it would go well with the beard, but with his like very thin face and like the mustache, I think I think it looked great. I think the sunglasses, the sunglasses were very almost like steampunky. They're very much like um, the look you would get there, like Gary Oldman when he plays mm-hmm. Dracula in Bram mm-hmm. Stoker's Dracula. It's like a very similar look, which was a great look, even though he's a vampire. So <laughs> uh, let's talk about Dashiell. Uh, clearly, Francis is taken by him. Clearly, Dashiell enjoys Marion's companies. I don't know what his deal is exactly yet romantically. He does bring up his dead wife. He mentions Harriet in this episode, but then he's very flirty. Uh, Caroline, if a guy said, if you want a guy a, a bunch of money and he says, well, I'm going to get you a special treat, that feels a little bit loaded to me, especially in 1883. What kind of special treat are you going to get for her, Dashiell? Good God, man. Probably like a handkerchief or something. <laughs> it's 1883. So, yeah, it's going to be something like a handkerchief. That's my very best guess. Still scandalous, Maybe though. Maybe like a little pin for her hair or something. That would be very familiar to get. But, yeah, no, it's. I think he's being very familiar. I mean, now this is a weird thing because we do have this concept that they are cousins just by marriage, but they are cousins. So him being like really kind to her or being very familiar with her can get kind of blurry for us because... We just commended Oscar for for reaching out to his cousin and being cool and being friendly and talkative. So it's it's a little hard right now for me to tease out like how much of this is just him coming back into town, him wanting to make, you know, good with his own family members. And how much is this romantic? Like it's going to be it's going to have to kind of 
clearly tease out for me in order for me to have an opinion. They are very good together. They chat together. He very much understands her. Obviously, she gets, you know, the Francis connection, all these things. So there is a lot there to build on. But I don't I don't want to be too quick to assume this is romance because of the Oscar storyline where we have him also being really kind to her and looking out for her. Dashiell's really doing the same things, but we're attaching a very romantic, you know, tag on that. So I just want to watch and see the, if the next episode or two, if we kind of suss this out and we say, oh, nope, this is definitely taking a romantic turn versus just a, a close familial. I want to be, you know, cool to my cousin kind of thing agreed but oscar doesn't ask her to dance and then she doesn't allow oscar to have a dance as a way of saving her from edward morgan but see the trick is that she didn't necessarily accept that dance before he had to become the scapegoat for her so that's why i'm saying a little yeah but but she needed to get away from him Mm, so using dashel then again isn't that's not romantic that's trying to get out of a bad situation and him sure. helping her get out of a bad situation. So I mm, there, there's an implied unsure. there's an implied level of trust though when a person there turns 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 to someone and says, please save me, even if they don't use those words, that's how she's using here. That that is her saying, I trust you to save me from him, which is an important degree of familiarity and trust that yes cousins and family would have together but obviously it is a requirement where you would hope it was a requirement in any kind of romantic feelings that would be um uh, that would bloom or not bloom so the question is why was she hesitant to dance with him before edward came along because you're right she didn't accept that right he put himself out there he said it and again cousins i'm sure dance together and anyone seeing on the floor would be like oh look at those fifth cousins by marriage dancing no they're gonna be like their family they're van rines and brooks but they know they're not married so why does why does she hesitate is it because she doesn't like to dance or is it because she's unsure of her feelings or or what and dancing feels like maybe it gets too blurry well so here's the thing there was only just like a pause there yeah Yeah, when morgan shot in so it's hard so we don't know what she was gonna say we don't know if she would have said i would love to dance or what she said because he just kind of kind of bursted in which was important and really good storytelling because it leaves us wondering is marianne looking at her at him as a romantic partner or not and for sure once morgan asks then definitely he's just a way out so i mean because she uses uh, gladys you know uh, later where it's like oh we're just talking over here we're just doing you know so it's like she's using everyone around her to get away from morgan for sure going back to oscar the newport uh storyline really ends because aurora once she has now invited oscar to come to newport after marion brings it up she's playing matchmaker not only for marion and edward but pairing playing a little bit of matchmaker for oscar and one maud beaton uh I, I introduced her at the beginning of the episode but one of the new faces joining tonight the actress name is nicole bryden bloom joining the show as maud beaton little bit of a mysterious figure because the actual name Maud Beaton seems to be fictional. As I continue to research, it'll show up, I'm sure, as a amalgam of some person. There's a rumor that maybe she is an illegitimate daughter of Jay Gould, who we have met in the show. Uh, that may explain the level of money she has access to that her late father and mother themselves may be 
couldn't have actually had. And I'm curious of your first impressions of her and and her first impressions kind of of Oscar. They kind of know of each other. Mm-hmm. Or she knows of him. It seems actually he doesn't know of her really at all, other than when he hears a little bit of the connection uh, that she may have to Agnes. So it's rare for Oscar to come across a complete stranger who is part of the old money set. I, really mysterious. I, I, I have a real big question mark here. I don't know how I feel yet, but I'm curious what your take was or for first thoughts, first bones. I felt like she gave me like Anna Delvey vibes, like maybe the way that it was like, oh, she was kind of hanging out over in Europe. There's like kind of vagueness about her. She knows the Drexels, but she's like kind of she's a, she's an unknown. And in this group, an she knows unknown many fish too, right? She's yeah, but being fishes. like an unknown is kind of bizarre. You know, everyone really keeps good track of each other. So I like that she seems to have money, but we don't know her whole story. She definitely seems like someone who Oscar could co-plot with and like create a little story. Maybe she has same-sex tendencies that she needs to keep hidden that, you know, perhaps that he would be a good beard for her. Don't know. But I definitely think she's into some other stuff that's outside of mainstream that the way that Aurora was talking about her and the way that everyone was like sort of like intrigued by her. I felt like, okay, she's not just your run of the mill damsel that's available. Like there's something else about her. She's also, I mean, bluntly speaking, she's too pretty and too of the right age to to be unknown when she shares uh, when she is part of the Stuyvesant clan right she's been hanging out in Europe so that would we don't have the same uh, you know social media and everything so she's again like that that's interesting that she somehow wasn't over here with the movers and the shakers, you know? And interesting, just a little connection because people may not remember. So we, so Aurora and giving her backstory, uh, late John Beaton uh, passed away. The mother passed away. The mother was a Stuyvesant. The mother passing away is the reason she was in Europe trying to get over it. Uh, the mother being a Stuyvesant, Mamie Fish, who we didn't see this week, but we did hear of her this week. Um, that Because remember, she knows the Drexels, but she wasn't staying in Newport with the Drexels. She was staying with some friends, but she had been at a party with Mamie Fish the night before. Mamie Fish, how Mamie Fish is in society, she's married to Stuyvesant Fish. Stuyvesant Fish is of descended of the Peter Stuyvesant line. He is a Stuyvesant, and that is how they are in society. So it wouldn't be odd then for Stuyvesant Fish and her late mother to have been probably cousins or some some other close family relationship then and that would be the connection to how she knows she's maybe an like a, a niece uh to or a cousin to Mamie and to Stuyvesant Fish so you have to imagine Agnes would be very pleased with anyone who even can like has Stuyvesant in their name let alone in their bloodline or access to their money I feel like maybe the conversation of lavender marriages is in our is in our offing even based just on your initial thoughts which i think maybe also line up with some of my initial thoughts too but i think we got to put cork in that because we really didn't spend a lot of time with old maud and oscar so other than just aurora's faint warning of please don't make me regret this i i'm 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 in i'm in enough on this kind of newish oscar that we really got to see fully in this episode and this mysterious new woman into his life to see where they go with it he needs a partner who has equal amount of like 
questionable skeletons in closets kind of feel where like she has some secrets to keep and he has some secrets to keep together they can keep each other's secrets that feels like a good pairing it makes me feel more calm about their pairing because like they both know what they're getting into as opposed to the Gladys Oscar type feel where you're like oh I feel really bad about Oscar like preying upon a girl who has like no clue what her life's going to be like something tells me Maude Beat knows exactly what her life would be like and P.S. she's going to kind of do her own thing so like she'd be an independent girl and that is just like a one second read on her kind of funny to have such a strong read in a second but I did at, at, credit to the show credit to the actor so uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more uh, last big story before we do some downstairs uh, servant shenanigans is we have to talk about tea with the reverend. Old Ada has arranged a, a most delightful tea with Reverend Forte, Robert Sean Leonard, uh, continuing the role. A couple things about this one. I, I picked it up a little bit when I watched the first episode, but it was more strong here. I really like the accent that there that he's doing for Reverend Forte. It is subtle at times where it's just in the hint of his word without really bringing attention to it. But then when he was really talking about his grandfather coming over and then his father being Catholic and the reason an Italian is in in Boston at this time, like then talking about Boston, like he really let his Boston accent kind of fly. But then he like tucked it back away again when the subject changed. It's really, it's really delicate accent work. And I think Boston accents, like New York's accents, are so, so poorly done so often in media, in TV shows and in movies. You always get like a real over the head caricature. It doesn't have that super hammy, you know, sometimes they just go like way over the top. Right. Like, have you met an R? Do you know it's what one much. is? <laughs> yeah, people do too much. And so, yeah, you're right. I, but you know what? Really, really, really good nuance on like every character in this. I, I don't feel like there's that many people who hit us over the head with any particular part of their personality, which is a, a huge testament to casting. I know we talked about this in last episode, but it's something that I really want to keep bringing attention to. Like the reason why we can add so many new characters and new faces and have people with different accents and different backgrounds and all stuff is because the casting is so good. No one feels like a weird stereotype. No one feels like you just put them in. In and we've got like wacky, uh, you know, like just pretend like they're from this place. None of that. It all seems like organic and natural. And that's a big hats off to casting. Uh, some interesting things to learn about the Reverend. It only, and I think I want to spend time with him only because I feel like he's someone we're going to have to get to know because it seems like they're going to move him and Ada forward in some capacity. Uh, I think the evidence for that is clear. Not only that she puts together this tea, but what happens after he leaves with Agnes's, what I found to be unnecessarily cruel mocking of of Ada, but also just Ada's face and her whole demeanor. And I'm going to play a great clip about when she says a line that made me smile so hard. She's like, he's not my rector. Like, it maybe it was very cute. <laughs> but it's interesting. So his father, a Catholic Italian, landing in Boston, or family landing in Boston in the 1790s, I think. Yeah, 17, uh, 19, 1794, his grandfather comes to Boston. So we're almost 100 years of the Fortes in Boston, Catholic. And he here he is, a reverend in the Episcopalian Church. Why? Because his mother was Episcopalian. Another strong female figure in this show. 
And I like the way he said it because he said something like, and she wore the pants in the family kind of thing. Like she was much stronger than the dad. There was something about that. that She was like a force, I think he says, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, there was something refreshing about that because, again, you know, like they've really shied away from showing us. They've talked about it, but they haven't really shown us the overbearing, abusive husband storyline. We've talked about it. We've talked about Arnold being harsh. We've talked about um, Mr. Blaine being controlling and not allowing things to happen. But we haven't seen anyone get like screamed down or told to stay in their place or anything like that. So I'm giving a lot of props to the idea of role modeling these good relationships and how like good kids can come out of these good parents when they have a good relationship. All those things happening, like I felt like, okay, I'm getting you. Do you think it's unrealistic that we haven't seen, I mean, seen a storyline where there's someone who's just so overbearing and out of control? I I do a little bit. I do a little bit because the... Like, are we being too kind to the times? Charles, George... I guess actually there's a lot of widows in the show. I mean, who are some of the other men? We don't see what Mr. Clay is like when he's home with his wife. But even like, say, Dashiell or Mr. Springs, like either of them could have been crazy. And and I know Mr. Rakes was like a a very like underhanded human, but he wasn't like outwardly abusive. He never yelled at anybody. He never did that. Was he abusive emotionally? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mr. McNeil, maybe? I mean, Mr. who we do see in this episode, we don't see him with Flora. He seems to have a firm grip on Flora's wrist. Uh, Aurora? Uh, 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 Flora, Flora. Remember, oh, oh, Watson, oh. The, no, you're yeah. right. You're right. That relationship, you're right. He's a little bit more, um, like, I'm not going to say, I don't want to say sharp with her, but, but, but she doesn't seem remotely afraid of him or anything like that. Like, no, he does but, seem like very much more strict, but at the same time, it, I didn't read afraid i read like he's someone who takes protecting her very seriously mm, i take I, it like that i i think taking that but there's an there's something about his character he seems like someone who in social situations holds his wife's wrist very firmly when they're talking with other couples or other people and by that, I mean uh, that she kind of has to... I don't think Flora has carte blanche to say whatever she wants to say. I, the impression I get is that there's an expectation for her to mind her P's and Q's and speak the, the accepted family line. It also seems, knowing how Watson and, and the fortune lost, made and lost, and he must have been brought up by a mother, Flora may not have been up to Robert McNeil's status exactly when he married her. And there's there's nothing to support any of this other than the way he has looked at her, the way he looks at her when she kind of is having her like little mini stroke last week when she's thrown off by seeing Watson or Collier uh, serving the wine. There's an aspect of him that seems very protective of their name and their status and I think he may be the closest to a sharp tongue controlling husband that we have in the show. And again, we haven't actually seen it. It's just something about the way the character is being played and carried out that is has, has my hair raised a little bit on my arm. Okay. But again, we haven't seen the real deal. Like, we didn't right. see Arnold right. in action. We, nev- we don't see Mr. Blaine in action. So I feel like Lord Fellows is kind of protecting our hearts, I think, a little bit from the reality of these marriages. You know, a lot of them were very unkind to women and definitely 
not good for them. But I feel like we're getting a different slice of the pie. So I'm okay with that. It's not like he doesn't reference bad relationships. He certainly does. We just aren't seeing. I think there's a conscious effort that the reason we're dealing, there's so many widows or strong maternal figures with absentee husbands or uh, husbands that just, you know, allow their wives to act independently as they should, I think is because narratively he wants to focus on the strength of those particular women that being said i think it would help to see an arnold van ryan-esque type of person or like you said mr blaine the way he's being described it would be helpful to see one of them in action in the circle so that you could see mrs astor or agnes or bertha or aurora women at different parts in their lives roll their eyes or clench their fists at watching one of their fellow women of society have to endure what their husband puts them through. I'm going to leave their response very neutral on the table because I actually don't know that they would recoil as much as maybe there would be like a this is the way it is on a lot of things. I mean, you heard George say boys will be boys. I I think that it that unfortunately, I think this time frame, you'd be much more likely to say like, man, she's got her hands full with him or like, God, I, I feel for her, but not what he's doing is wrong. What he's doing is abusive. This is wrong. She should get away from like none of that. It would all be like not eye rolls, but more like empathetic looks like, shoot, man, you're in a bad sitch, but not like I'm going to help you get out or I'm going to do something or I'm going to say something like nothing, nothing like that. I, I didn't have a lot of religion growing up and I eventually became a Catholic. So it's it's a bit foreign to me, the idea of the clergy marrying. Obviously, I understand it. And I've actually probably honestly, in my adult life, I've actually probably been to more Episcopalian services than than Catholic services, actually, as it turns out. So obviously, I'm not foreign to the idea, but it's interesting to hear when Agnes says things to the reverend, how did you escape Rome's clutches? Or praising the idea of allowing clergy to marry. And she she phrases it really elegantly, and I'm going to butcher it. She basically says, marriage allows the minister to share the burden of their ministry. But as it turns out, Reverend Forte himself is not married. I never really thought about that before. I was curious if you picked up on that line, curious what you thought of it. I, I've never thought about the idea of the benefit to a priest or to a clergyman in, in marriage is that, you, you know, you go home and you have someone to tell your office, your office mm-hmm. issues with, which is something yeah. that I think all of us, uh, you know, like to do with our spouses or significant others complain and vent about the day. Or even maybe just get some counsel, like in terms of like, I mean, really, when you think about how, priests or or ministers or rectors are looked at. I mean, they're all looked at as like this place where you should be able to go and get some advice and some life advice. And, you know, who gives those advice? Who gives the advice? You know, sometimes you have to have that relationship where you can talk it out and then come back to the situation and be like, okay, and I've like bounced these ideas around a little bit. Now I'm ready to actually give some good advice. I could see that. I I liked that they showed um, like a reason why being married would be 
beneficial because I think so many of us just assume I, I, I grew up Catholic. So for me, it's very foreign to have anybody married in the church, very foreign. And I never even thought of the concept of like sharing the burden of ministry that didn't cross my mind, but it's a really good point. And like, as silly as it is, shows like The Simpsons, I mean, Mrs. Lovejoy, they do talk <laughs> like that's the minister's wife and they show them talking about issues throughout the the whole all their seasons. So, I mean, I do have someone named Maud, references. right? Wasn't her, name, wasn't her name Maud? <laughs> it was Maud Flanders, but... Midnight Beaton. You don't know. <laughs> Maybe so. Old Maud passed away, though. I don't I know, know if you know sad. that. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Very sad. Yeah. But anyway, who knew you guys were going to get a Simpsons reference in here? Uh, but I think Always overall... Always be I ready mean, for Simpsons references. I like the idea that they explained why it wouldn't be in any type of conflict for him to get married because that would kind of erase anybody's doubts who was watching who said like eh, I'm not cool with the clergy being married like that's no good in in Catholic world what we were always taught was you're married to the church like that is your spouse so there was there would be no room in what I was taught for anyone else and you shouldn't be talking about anything with anyone else anyway this seemed like a far more understanding kind of stance on it. And uh, and I'm for it because it really does clear the path for Ada to be able to move forward without any of us thinking she was being scandalous in the church or right. anything. Th this whole scene checks all the boxes. He's never been married. He's not a widower, which is usually the single men on the show. Usually it's because there's a dead wife somewhere. He's dutiful to his mother. That was also a really good ask sign you, for do, Ada. Does that score points for you as, as you as a woman? Does it score points for you if you hear a guy say, I couldn't have left Boston while my my mother was alive now you know now that she's not i can i can move on but the duty to to being a good son taking care of her in her later years score points for you or you're just like eh, mama's boy whatever well so mixed bag <laughs> some part of me is like that's i knew great. it would be then... that's why i asked <laughs> So some part of me is like, like as an outsider, not a part of anything having to do with the relationship. I'm like, that's really nice. That that really shows that he respects his family. He obviously cares a lot about them. That that feels good. Right. But on the flip side, he is a very old, advanced age to be like the like saying he wouldn't even move because of his mom. Like that to me, I'm like, yeah, I'm leaning into that mama's boy thing. But the good news is that his mom has passed. And so whatever that was, that could have been a serious problem in a marriage for him because it's very clear he would be dutiful to his mother first and foremost. Since she's passed, it's fine to bring it up that he was a very dutiful son while she was alive, but it's no longer an obstacle. Like a wife could come in on the scene. She wouldn't be there to be in conflict. So I'm cool with the way they explained it. Like historically, he's shown good respect and loyalty to family. Good. That's all we need to come of that. Here's where this whole tea situation goes bad for me. So they walk him out. He has to go because he's doing Evensong. Oh, which wait, is... can I mention one thing? Please. Please, I have to mention this one thing. <laughs> you know how they tell you don't act with, with children or animals? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the entire interaction with Pumpkin the dog was so <laughs> forced and odd. Like that poor pooch, like there was a whole thing going on there. And at some points in time, again, I'm sure the actor was just trying to keep the distraction down because the dog was moving around. But so the much. grip that he had on the dog at some points was like 
a little much. And so actually that's where my eyes were going because I was like thinking like, that's a weird way to hold a dog. Well, that's like he hands off the strong. dog. He, yeah. He, he hands I off the dog like the way a pumpkin dad. down yeah. at some point and let pumpkin run out of the scene because the amount of time he had to hold the dog and the dog was being so squirmy, it, it was giving bad vibes about him as if the dog didn't like being there or wasn't comfortable being on his lap, which normally to an audience is our visual indicator that like, this is not a good guy if the dog is weirded out, right? Well, But I just think the dog was acting up. That's what I think. Maybe, the actor dog was acting up. Maybe, but how, how great in hindsight if it turns out that he is not. <laughs> that he is weird. That Pumpkin knew all along because no one is more loyal to Ada than Pumpkin. Come on. I mean, it's... And no one shows their colors more than a pooch, right? I mean, if an animal or a baby doesn't like you, then I'm going to give you a lot of extra looking. It's funny you mentioned baby because he hands off Pumpkin in the most awkward way. It's like a sitcom when a, a dad, a brand new dad who's never held a baby before or like an uncle has an never uncle. held a baby, like mm-hmm. hands off the baby like it is disgusting or like or it's like, it's like actually like radiation. Right. Like, it's like, it's like, like get it away from me. Right, 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 yeah. right. You have Completely. to think the pooch just wants to get back to Cynthia Nixon though because it's her screen partner. The dog only knows really hanging out with Needlepoint and, and Cynthia. That's all he knows. That's all the Well, dog and knows. I would say, uh, and also Bannister. Because Bannister walks Oh, Bannister him. walks so him. Yeah. their relationship, those three, I would say is solid. And often small dogs are very not good about being more than a relationship or two. They Like Chihuahuas are famously known for like only loving one person. But Cocker Spaniels, that, that pumpkin is also kind of you stick to like one or two people. So I was kind of like, oh, we're going to try to. I, it was very familiar to give him the dog on his lap or for him to take the dog on his lap. However, that happened, which I don't actually remember how that dog got on his lap. I think he was just on it. I think it, the, he, the scene, the scene begins with it. Uh, with him it on. was just too long. I felt really bad for the actor and really bad for them to try to have that dog not be distracting. <laughs> a total tangent, but I was reminded of it listening to um, Brent Spiner, who played Data in Star Trek The Next Generation. Data was an android who, Pinocchio syndrome, forever chasing being a human. Even though he had superior strength and superior intellect, he he just wanted to be human more than anything else. So over the course of the show, he gets a cat. Data gets a cat, a cat named Spot. Spot is a very cute cat, but Spot is also a very bad cat. Very untrained, really has trained Data more. Classic cat situation. The, the owner is trained more than the cat is. Uh, but but Spot is there for most of the seasons of Star Trek and actually even appears in the movies. Data spends a lot of time with Spot. Brent Spiner has to spend a lot of time with the cat that plays Spot. Uh, after the movies were finished and Spot, actually, it's a, it's a climactic thing. The ship has crashed in one of the movies and Data finds Spot, like, literally buried in the wreckage and, and Spot is fine. Brent Spiner hates cats. Hates them. And they forced him to interact with this cat on and off for years. On top of putting him in all of this silver face makeup that they that he had to wear as Data, they forced him to interact with the, with a cat that, and he hates cats so so much. Some of the outtakes of of different lines or different actions he proposed to writers over the years of Star Trek about things he'd like to do to spot the cat or that he thinks Data should do to spot the cat would chill your blood. <laughs> Uh, certainly he did not want to find Spot in the wreckage alive. That was that oh. was for sure. He <laughs> hated cats. So I, I was I was struck by that thinking about like imagine Robert Sean Leonard as it turns out was like allergic to dogs or something and like 
I, I mean, it was. I just, don't know if that's I, true. I'm not I, saying he is, but I was very reminded about that, though. So. It was unfortunate because it was not. There was nothing that was actually going wrong, and maybe if they just acknowledged it, and if Ada was like, "Oh, pumpkin's being such a squirmy worm today," or something like that, if they just acknowledged it, we all probably would have moved on. But I couldn't not watch him and then you could tell the edits because sometimes the dog would be turned around on his lap but you didn't see the dog right. turn around and so it was like oh no so there's stuff the dog was doing that just it was just one of those you don't want to act with a dog or an animal or any children like it's very hard and hey i'm telling you francis was stealing the scenes too you know when she was in on the scene i was watching her as much as i was watching marion which Again, you know, as we're someone, not supposed to care that much about Francis. As, as someone who struggled a lot in the one art class I was forced to take when I was in seventh grade, I uh, I found Francis to be a really believable student. I actually, because kids are hit and miss on TV shows whether or not they can act. I actually thought she was perfectly believable and 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 really expressed a child's frustration at the one thing destroys the entire worth of the picture. I have a son who very much would react the exact way as Francis. Uh, if if the son or whatever got, you know, at the very end of the painting, it was, it, it didn't it, it come out right or felt like it ruined the entire thing and like just want to go rip it up. It felt really, I, I don't know, it felt very authentic to me just talking about, you know, acting with, with kids and, and animals. Uh, see, here's my problem. So they walk, uh, Agnes and Ada walk out the Reverend. This is when Oscar flops himself down on the couch with Marion and laments Gladys and all that. Ada comes in and picks up on this scene. And this is, this is, this is where I got a little, a little upset with, uh, old Agnes. How lovely. I'm glad we were able to meet Mr. Forte again. We ought to entertain more. It's so much fun. I agree. And I liked your. I'm stopping it just so because I want you to hear the joy in her voice. It is coming through in the audio recording without even seeing it. You can hear every word she's saying with a big smile on her face. Dan, who doesn't want that for Ada? Ah, who doesn't want that for Ada? Well, Agnes doesn't want that for Ada. Let's let's keep listening. How lovely. I'm glad we were able to meet Mr. Forte again. We ought to entertain more. It's so much fun. I agree. And I liked your rector. Oh, he is not my rector, but I'm glad you like him. I would have enjoyed it more if I could have got a word in edgewise. Oh, Aunt Agnes. I mean it. What came over you? Had you taken chatter pills? <laughs> he was so pleasant and interesting. Hardened criminals have answered fewer questions in the dock. I wonder you didn't ask to see his mother's death certificate. Well, I thought he had a wonderful time talking to both of you. And I hope we can see more of him. Mm. I doubt it. I suspect he'll be unavoidably detained if we try again. <laughs> that little. <laughs> now, what do you make of the no. fact that Agnes is trying to say that he would be unavoidably detained? Like, do you think that she's trying to imply that he had a bad time? Yes. A hundred percent. Why, though? He's, but why? Because she's saying that Ada asked so many questions as to make it feel like he was being like a, like a bare bulb interrogation. Oh, see, I didn't get that at all. No, I mean, this, maybe this that's just no. societally like too much etiquette, but you know. Whatever. This is the problem. Agnes is just going to shit all over this. This is going to be a big problem for Ada. If this is how Agnes is acting after just tea, this is an issue. 
she wasn't interrogating him. He was freely talking about it's called finding out about a person. And for her to deflate Ada's balloon just made me so sad. I mean, it's it's the most predictable thing. And yeah, not for nothing. You were talking about casting and how all the characters just all kind of make sense. When Agnes, uh, you know, uh, spits that great barb about, did you take chatter pills? And then you hear, you even hear it on the audio. They cut to Oscar, who's about to take like a bite of something. He stops and he snickers in yes. the most delightfully <laughs> naughty boy way. And it's like, that's his son. That's his mother. And then at the end, you get her chuckle. Like, <laughs> like they're cut from the same cloth. Oscar is clearly Agnes's son. It is, it was very funny. The both of them having their little snide chuckles, so audibly delightful and evil at Ada's expense. But come on, Agnes, let Ada have this. She's never had happiness there's a couple parts to this right so agnes we talked about seems to be slowing down she has to be thinking a little bit about who's head of house when she's not now she's the type of person who thinks she'll never go she's never gonna die it wouldn't be like really like serious consideration but i could see where things like any idea that ada would move on and have her own house or or doing all of that is a threat to Agnes and the way that she imagines things could move forward because it doesn't mesh, you know, like anything that anyone does, Oscar getting married, Ada getting married, Marion getting married, all of this leaves Agnes alone. So there's, there's a chance for every single one of these things that she could be happy on some level, but there's going to be a bigger part of her that's going to be insecure about what does this mean for the Van Ryan family? What does this mean for our lineage? What does this mean for our name? But also, who, what does this mean for like controlling the wealth and everything that's happening? We can't forget old money, new money is the real theme to all of this. So there's a game here. And obviously, the rector's not coming with money. I mean, he would be sponging off of Van Ryan money, you know? So we already, that, that's not a dynamic Agnes wants. So there's a lot there that you could see where she'd be just like older sister concerned, but I'm with you that if at some point she needs to say, Ada deserves some happiness, Ada deserves to have a companion. But if Agnes herself was willing to put up with whatever Arnold dished out, then there's people like that who make those sacrifices, who feel like if I made those sacrifices in order for all of you to have money and be comfortable, you all should be too. You all don't get to marry for love and for comfort and whatever else. You guys also need to be like taking some for the team, you know? I, I agree with all of that. I think there is going to, I feel like there's an aspect of this and I may be proven wrong, but knowing who Agnes is and, and, and especially if we're going with the idea of her being an advanced age and maybe there is health issues here that she hasn't expressed, but the show maybe is foreshadowing. We talked about that last week in the opening scene when they were walking to Easter Sunday church service. You know, the idea that Ada, she's not just the little sister, but she's the only companion that has brought joy or at least companionship because Arnold brought none. She wasn't even on a first name basis with her husband. Selfish is the word that comes to mind. Agnes is going to poo-poo this before the money aspects, before the name and the society aspects. It's going to be out of pure selfishness to not want to lose Ada after so many years of only having her. As much as she lambasts her for her talkativeness and for her daftness and for her needlepoint and for her pumpkin, she doesn't leave the room. She sits there and and she happily obliges she happily spends all, all, all of her time with Ada. So she doesn't really dislike her that much. Ada is the familiar chair. 
she is the blanket that she is the wub that you need that agnes needs i don't think she's going to give it up for that reason and primarily that reason out of a place of selfishness which if it turns out to be will be very hard to forgive because ada deserves to be happy i agree wholeheartedly i really hope that agnes finds some little part of her that can be happy for her but i mean i in my opinion this season's agnes has been quite a bit tougher quite a bit louder quite a bit angrier so i don't know that we're gonna see her be accepting maybe last season she was and and, uh, the few times we see her really have a lot of compassion and show a lot of open-mindedness is with peggy only only with peggy honestly but why because what happens to Peggy does not affect her at That's all. True. Not her money, not her name, not her It costs her nothing. You know? yeah. It true. costs her nothing to be nice. So it's great that she is nice because it really costs her nothing. And, and listeners might say, well, if it got out that her staff was writing in the newspaper, but you're right. Maybe in the minutia, short, small little nasty comments could be made about Lord Agnes. Fellows handles that though because Armstrong brings up that that's the that's how that's Armstrong's entire argument against Peggy that's the her stated argument against Peggy is her writing is incendiary and I'm thinking of your good name uh, and protecting it and and Agnes says in this episode it's been a long time since my name has needed any protecting or something like that so along the lines of like you know, she no, no one is questioning the Van Ryn name so that argument doesn't really hold water for anyone who's going to question it. You're a hunter. It costs her nothing to be magnanimous to Peggy. Plus, Peggy is impressive. And I think Agnes, Agnes is progressive enough to see and recognize impressive, but she can indulge it when it doesn't affect her family name and what she sees as being the protector of that name and that fortune. You know, I, I'm sure she sees Marion as impressive. She would never admit it, though, because Marion needs to follow, at least as far as Agnes thinks, needs to follow the script for what someone in the Van Ryn family needs to follow. If Marion wasn't related to her, I'm sure she would be perfectly pleasant to Marion. Right, right. She'd be a lot less judgy because, right. you know, it's not it's not happening under it, her right. roof in it the same co- way. It, while it costs her nothing to be nice to Peggy, it costs her everything to be nice or gracious or loving, even like outwardly loving to Ada and to Marion. Let's head downstairs for a little bit of downstairs intrigue. There's a couple of things to wrap up here. Church and Bannister. The church really wants to put behind them him selling out and almost costing Bannister his job. Bannister, he says, you're asking to forgive and forget, yes, as he's walking pumpkin. And Church, in his church way, is like, yes, very much so. And he's like, oh, that phrase is curious. I could forgive, I guess, maybe, perhaps, but I certainly shall never forget. Calls him a prolific letter writer, as I remember, as I recall. Come on, Bannister, you didn't lose your job. Is he just, is he just, like, like, fucking with him you think or is it like yeah yeah i mean i think he just he just enjoys having that upper hand and and having any amount of like kind of groveling like Can you just please move past it? it's like it almost like puffed up his chest more like it, it almost made him yeah. more nasty it's a real agnes because, like agnes and Bannister really made it yeah. heaven yeah. <laughs> you know 
it's funny. I was having, it's funny that you say it like that. I was we having talked about this it a little of, bit last week, I thought. A yeah. little bit, but I was kind of having like a daydream of like when everybody else is gone for the day, like if Bannister would ever like be invited to sit down and like have a cup of tea with her or like read the newspaper with her or do something like that where I know it's not, I know societally, not cool, not cool. But there's something about the companionship with them that I felt like, it wouldn't be crazy if we learned that they did have tea every once in a while or something oh, for like that. sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think if, if we, especially if Ada leaves the house, I would very much expect Bannister to serve Agnes something. He turned on his heel to leave. Agnes says, come sit, talk to me for a bit. And he becomes the new Ada. I very much could see that developing going forward if Ada does, in fact, end up leaving the house for some, you know, reason, reverend or otherwise. Uh, it's, 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 it's funny watching him. Uh, it's fun watching him make Church squirm also because Church is so <laughs> flustered by the whole thing. Well, he just wants, I mean, have you ever been in that position where you just want to put something behind you? You don't want to. Well, because do he's like the one who anymore. fucked up. That's why he's trying. Right. But he's also, but he's trying. I mean, he came he hat is. in hand, like, please, like, 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 can we possibly just move on? I, and Bannister just enjoys it too much, which is totally the Agnes. It's but that's very totally much. that vibe, you know? Uh, very much so. Uh, which is funny because he's charged with walking Ada's dog. But it's really Agnes's spirit that he he uh, he embodies. We see Mister McNeil uh, sniffing around the end, the servants' entrance. He he makes a whole big mess of trying to get in touch with what he knows as Collier. We know as Watson to send him a message, but it eventually goes to church. It goes to uh, it goes to George. Has to bring him brings him into the. Uh, to the sitting room to talk about it and and mcneil won't say anything which only makes the entry grow even more it was so strange i was like why in the world did he agree to go into the house to sit there with george when he was never going to tell him what the issue was right. I, I understand like manners wise he kind of needed to because he already begged off once he's like i don't want to interrupt you guys but then once it was like happening it was like he kind of seemed like he couldn't get out of going in but it was like, shit, why didn't you make up some other reason? I, I actually thought it was kind of fascinating that he didn't make up a reason. I, I feel like most other characters we have in this story would have made up a reason why they were there. Not just come in and say, it's not my secret to tell you. That is a perfectly loyal and reasonable thing to say to somebody else, I think. It's not my secret to tell you, so I'm not going to tell you, but it's not because I'm trying to be like disrespectful to you. I actually give that writing like A++ because that is a solid response in a respectful way. Also goes out of his way to lie. say, and also goes out of his way to say, rest assured, Watson didn't do anything improper or is not in any kind of trouble. So, so it's not like George is like, I need to know if, if you're here trying to look for one of my servants and it's not because you're trying to poach him like Church is worried about, then I need no, I need to know what is up because there's no reason you, a man of society, should be looking for my valet to speak to him so so i like that on top of it's not my secret to tell also says to, to the extent that maybe it will soothe george's worry he's not in any trouble he didn't do anything wrong but also very strange though like you couldn't have made arrangements to meet him outside you didn't think you were going to get caught you you're, you're a known face to this family and a member of society you don't think anyone's going to notice you're trying to get in the servant's entrance of the russell house there's there's nine thousand people walking around that house at any given time old robert mcneil there plus the robert mcneil because he's a banker and we know george being uh being a very rich man 
in the past, we've actually seen bankers need George's help. He has so much money that bankers actually come to him for things. But it's an interesting dynamic because of that relationship, but also the McNeils being pro-Met because they can't get into the Academy of Music. And now we're intermingling the servants on top of this. It, it's There's a, a quickly developing sticky, messy web involving the McNeils and the Russell household. Not just the Russells, but the Russell household. It's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. Were you surprised that Watson or Collier, I, I want to keep calling him Watson because I like that name better. Yes. He comes clean to church. I guess it, maybe he felt like he had to because in the same way George wanted to know why Robert McNeil was asking after him, church as Watson's direct supervisor also wanted to know why he was sniffing around him. I appreciated that interaction a great deal, actually, because I thought that Church was, the way that he was, like, in an office kind of setting, it made me, and, like, like there was a lot of respect for the privacy of what the situation was, and his really genuine response of, like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry I had you serve your child. He such seemed, a funny response to me. No, I, I thought it was so like realistic that if you I were did, somebody yeah. who served in in society the most demeaning thing that could happen to you the, the most undignified humiliating thing would be to have to serve your own children there was a real glimpse into like the the protocol of how you deal with like being a, a person in the staff versus not and also just it showed me that church just really had this layer of empathy and understanding that we he hadn't had an opportunity to really show before. So I enjoyed that. I, it made me laugh, not because I, I agree with you. I think it actually showed a real heart on uh, of church and also really established. We've seen we've seen before that there really is no animosity in the Russell servant household, part of the household. B Bordon and church and Adelaide and and Watson and I'm forgetting the head Mrs. Bruce is her name. Watson and Mrs. and Mrs. Bruce, like they all get along really well. There's never friction among them. Turner was the only one that really ever caused friction and she's gone. They all they they jab at each other, they get along with each other, obviously they confide in each other, they have empathy and sympathy for each other. It it feels like uh, like more than just like work colleagues, but almost like family in the way they they kind of take the piss out of each other, but also like will be there for each other. I, I really like their dynamic. I know the Van Ryan household also mostly gets along, but you have Armstrong, which is this own little toxic toxic cancer. But otherwise, the Van Ryan servants all get along. But you don't really have any of that negativity in the Russell household, which is interesting because you also don't really have any negativity between George and Bertha usually, and it's, so it's almost like reflected like as it is above so it is below kind of for sure uh, except for adelaide who went all the way to newport and forgot her dress or forgot bertha's dress and had to come back to new york to get to imagine i mean I, I we all travel and sometimes you forget an outfit you really wanted to bring imagine having the resources to send your maid all the way back to new york from from newport to get one dress that they forgot to bring all these dresses are custom made. She can't just run to a store That's and true. grab something else in Newport. So the concept that all these dresses have been fitted and and literally, I'm sure, the fabric like cut 
directly from the bolt for this particular person, it's a whole bigger thing. You know, you can't just run to your local mall and get something. So you could tell, I mean, poor Alhide. I mean, you not a great impression when you're trying to become the main lady's maid, not just Gladys's maid, but the actual lady's maid. You can't. She was losing it, man. I I would be, I would feel horrible. I mean, how... mm. A little bit. You're like, and of course you have Bridget. <laughs> Bridget, who we don't even see watch this interaction later on, taking it to check. I mean, like I saw when they're playing war, like they're playing yeah. slap or war or something with the card. That I saw you talking to, uh, you know, uh, Miss Weber, uh, Christy, and he's just like, God, like, boy, get out of the bushes, Bridget. Stop watching me. <laughs> but God, I need some background as to why the two of these birds fell out because they have not told us anything about why all of a sudden Bridget's being treated like a pesky little sister like what happened jack what happened i'm gonna leave you with a little tantalizing fact because we've got to go where this has run so so long but the newport casino i actually kind of alluded to this earlier where all of the action takes place in newport is a real place dum, bum, bum, <laughs> with some interesting connections in the real building of it to our show so i'm very excited beyond Mickey sears playing tennis there and actually winning championships there there's actually even more connections to the real newport casino that is depicted in this show so we'll talk about that next week maybe i'll just put it up on the facebook group um yeah so interesting stuff the, again because the whole casino aspect really had been throwing me so i went and i, I dug a little bit about what is what they just play tennis and other field like lawn darts at this place there's no gambling at all but the casino meant something else back in the day so there you go so we'll get more into that next week but i think for now i think we're all wrapped up on this one I think we are. We're really lucky that you guys can keep coming back and listening to our episodes. We'll have episode three out to you as soon as possible. Thank you guys so much for listening. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate or review and subscribe so you never miss a new episode. While you're there, especially at Apple Podcasts, if you could leave us a five-star review, we would really super appreciate it. Listen, you may feel like you're wasting your time on museums but you're not but you're certainly not wasting your time if you leave us a five-star review and read us something nice we're gonna read it on the air it helps the show in promotion and man we just wanna we just want to hear what you guys have to say so leave us a nice five-star review we can't wait to read it on air and uh, like caroline said we'll be back with episode three pretty quickly and then episode four and then we'll be all caught up thanks so much for listening thank you for listening This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.